Hello, and welcome to the Being Human podcast. If you're new here, or if you're returning and you haven't yet, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you do not miss any future content coming from Being Human. And it's also the best way you can help support Being Human's growth. On this episode of the podcast, I sat down with Joe Taylor. Joe Taylor is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. He is the head grappling coach at HW1, and he is, of course, my coach. Joe is a massive asset to the gym. Anybody that's coached by Joe, anybody that trains at the gym will tell you what an integral part of the team Joe is. He's someone that never likes to take credit himself, never really gives himself the credit that he's owed, but he is someone who the gym would fall apart without. I've been training with Joe for over four years now, and Joe is not just a coach to me, he's like my big brother. He's given me so much advice, not just in terms of grappling, to help me on my journey in jiu-jitsu, in competing grappling. He's given me so much advice in life, how to better my life, how to deal with difficult situations that I've come across, that I've had to work through. Joe is someone who is incredibly intelligent, again, not just in terms of his knowledge with grappling and jiu-jitsu, but with life in general. He's got a lot of wisdom to share, and we went through his entire journey as a jiu-jitsu student and then jiu-jitsu coach and all of the wisdom that he picked up on the way. I always learn something when I talk to Joe and that was especially true of today. If you enjoyed the conversation, then make sure to hit that like button, comment, share, and hit that subscribe button as well. Thank you for watching and thank you for supporting Being Human. Okay, so we've got to give the people what they want. So we'll get the important stuff out of the way first. Right. Official statement on your rap career. MC Fathead, take us through the origin story. The origin story. I can't believe Jimmy's got in your head like this and allowed this. I didn't allow this. It wasn't just, just Jimmy. The, the whole the whole gym. Of, the amount of feedback. The fans do want it. Yeah, they do. They do want it. It has over three thousand views on YouTube as well. So well, MC Fathead does. MC Fathead. The the the, yeah. uh, the music video. Yeah, not the, yeah, There's yeah. a couple of just audio tracks on there. Uh, but the actual music video with Perm Dog and G Man, I believe, were my uh, accomplices. <laughs> that has uh, over three thousand views. And I recently messaged my mate uh, about a year ago and asked him if he still had the password to the account, so uh, he could take it down. And he claims to have forgotten the password mm. and has no access to the account anymore. So uh, it's on there forever. It's on there forever. So let's see if we can hit ten k views. Maybe yeah. we will after this. Maybe we will after this. Yeah. I mean, if I can get th if we can get three k views on this, we're doing we're doing well. So an official statement for what it was about. Yeah, or... take us through it. How how did MC Pathead come about? Give us the, the backdrop, the context. There was a lot of recreational drug taking <laughs> uh, back in my late teens and early twenties. Um, and me and my mates are just a bunch of idiots, to be totally honest. Uh, mainly. Me, I was the uh, the catalyst in it all, and I sort of just you were the ringleader. I puppeted my easily influenced friends into into making a, a ridiculous music video. Yeah, which still haunts me to this day. Um, there was a guy in Hinkley who was actually a serious. So, just for the record, I've never really like seriously. It is pursued, in jest. Yeah, it is in jest. It's total trolling. I've never in any serious way, shape, or form tried to pursue a musical career. <laughs> But there was a lad in the Hinkley space who uh, who was doing at the time, uh, and I believe his name was MC Rubik's, like the Rubik's Cube. 
Um, and he'd brought out a, like a, a serious music video where he'd filmed himself on top of KFC roof in town and stuff like that. <laughs> so uh, I claim to be the 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 one true His rap rival. icon from Hinkley, and he was obviously stepping on my turf. Uh, he was a, a young man who probably had no idea who I was, and within the space of about a month, I'd recorded and filmed a music video called Rubik's Ain't Ting, which I had several of my friends feature on and uh, I think that went more viral than anything he ever did um, and it was a total piss take so uh, yeah that's the uh, so you won yeah you won well I, w I did meet him at one point as okay. well like we, we we crossed paths in town and I wasn't sure how it was going to go but he did actually see the funny side he was, he was okay. a nice lad yeah. see if this happened today there would have been a celebrity boxing match yeah exactly so this was, before, this was before all of that yeah we yeah. just we just spat our bars and and let the, and let the public decide. Yeah, <laughs> let the public decide. Right. It was just it was uh, it was settled purely through music. There was none of this mm. uh, external theatre. Like we we settled Back it on when the mic. Were gentlemen. Yeah, we we yeah. settled it on the mic, mate. We settled it in the booth. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna get rinsed for this for saying this by Jimmy Brett and everyone else in the gym. But I think did you write it? Did you? Write yeah, that yeah, I wrote it. I yeah. think that's pretty good. Obviously, it's in jest and it's funny. But I think you're a pretty good lyricist. Uh, well, I do enjoy writing. I do enjoy writing, and like, um, yeah, I obviously had some fun with it and stuff. I had uh, one uh, one lad who was out of his mind on cocaine once in town. <laughs> tell me it had shades of Eminem. I do remember him saying that to me. How uh, how true or serious that is, uh, I'll leave that to debate. But I remember some lad who was uh, who was at the bar once come up to me and said, "Oh, you're 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 MC Fathead, aren't you?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, this is actually happening." Then, yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah, and he was just like, yeah, yeah, man, them, them, them lyrics were sick. I, mean, I can't remember what he exactly said, but I swear down he compared me in his own mind to Eminem. Not, do I agree with that comparison? Absolutely not. <laughs> but uh, I suppose like, the way I was com comedically rapping compared to like Slim Shady's early career could have some kind of correlation. I don't know. I don't know what mm. he was thinking. The lad was... Uh, heavily under the influence of narcotics so um yeah well i don't currently have that excuse in this present moment but i'm happy to go on record to say that i thought it was well written and I'm i can't well remember if you i can't remember any of the actual lyrics um to be honest like i, I to be honest Aaron, I've because a, a live rendition has been requested yeah there's no chance that's happening <laughs> i've repressed the the thought the lyrics the image all of it out of my mind to be totally honest because what started out as being a funny joke is now literally made its way and, and, and crept its way into my career, mm. my personal life. People who know and I would like to take me seriously are aware of MC Fathead. And uh, at the time, I never thought it would get this far, but it, but it has. And uh, it's to my detriment, if I'm totally honest. So a resurgence isn't on the cards. A resurgence is definitely... I did actually do, about five or six years ago, at my mate's barbecue, I believe, uh, we did actually... Uh, we did actually enter the booth one last time and record <laughs> another another freestyle but that's lost in the archive somewhere i don't know where that's that's disappeared off to but whoever, was, whoever, if, if they're watching this benko sam harrison joe vozza i believe they were there at the time um yeah it's 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 around someone's got it on a phone or a laptop somewhere it's around it's around hopefully it doesn't surface doesn't surface yeah <laughs> <laughs> So when that was so when that was filmed, 
Did you say you were 18 years I was old? around about nine, 19, 20, I'd say. Yeah, 19, 20. It was before I'd started jiu-jitsu or anything like that. I started jiu-jitsu when I was 20, just about to okay. turn 21. Yeah, I'm 99% sure I hadn't started jiu-jitsu yet. I was just sort of like maybe thinking about it. I don't know. I'm not sure. It was, it was, uh, I was around 19, 20. Yeah, I started jiu-jitsu just before I was 21. So it might have been literally the same year. But uh, yeah. it was before, like, I'd... That was a transitory point. Yeah, yeah. Had yeah. rap career, then moved into the... Yeah, the origin career. story to my jiu-jitsu career is my failed rap career. <laughs> yeah, let's say that, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I wanted to take it from there. So, 18, 19, 20 years old. Who's Joe Taylor at that point? Like you said, you haven't started jiu-jitsu yet, but what were you doing with life? I was... Uh, you know, ideas in terms of what you wanted to do with life in terms of a job? So I'd never really, like, I'd, I'd grew up um, pretty normal life, going to school and that kind of thing, meeting friends um, gradually over time. Like, you know what I mean? You start going out, partying, that sort of thing. Um, I was never really like a bad lad or anything like that, but I, I hung around with a few kids who were a bit naughty and everything else. And... Um, and yeah, like I, my life wasn't going down a, a bad route or anything like that, but it just wasn't really going anywhere. Do you know what I mean? I didn't have like, uh, I didn't have like a purpose, I wouldn't say, but I don't imagine many people do at that age. Like a lot of people are yet to discover themselves. People go traveling, don't they? People like complete apprenticeships and that sort of thing. But I'd never, t I'd never done an apprenticeship or anything like that. I'd gone to school, um, like compulsory education, and then I'd gone to sixth form after that. Uh, which was a total waste of time. I spent the majority of it like smoking weed and, and bunking off. Like I didn't attend a great deal of classes. Like I, I think I passed English and failed sociology and psychology. I, I couldn't tell you much about what I did with uh, with those courses or whatever you'd call them. Um, and then from there, I went into uh, repairing, um, you know, like cages they have in there. Uh, in, in supermarkets where they bring all like the stocks oh, yeah. and warehouses. I, yeah. I, I got a job when I finished sixth form repairing them. Um, it lasted about a week before I quit. And then I got a job working for, for National Grid, which is now Cadent in the office on agency. And it was a pretty cushy job. Um, like, yeah, not life changing money or anything like that, but it was just a steady nine till five, pretty comfortable, pretty easy. Started doing that. And then uh, I was friends with a, a lad, and I'm still <coughs> friends with him to this day. He's one of my childhood friends, Mark Timms. And Mark had recently um, recently got into kickboxing at that time, or Muay Thai. He'd recently got into Muay Thai, and he was, he'd gone to university in Birmingham. He was training at K-Star in Birmingham, and um, he'd lost a load of weight, and uh, it was just having nothing but a positive effect on his life. And I kind of always looked up to Mark a little bit. He's like, always been like uh, kind of a bit of a role model to me sort of thing. Like, um, And uh, I seen like the the positive influence he was having on him, and we obviously spent a lot of time together. And he was like, oh, why don't you try and do a bit? And uh, I think he recommended combat and exercise to me in uh, in the Neaton at the time. But it was the... Okay, the so that was already... It that was the original combat and exercise, not the where, not where it is now. It used to be uh, in a different location, okay. not far from the uh, the Queen's Hall, uh, the crew. Mm. It used to be just up the road from there. So uh, he recommended me to go there. And I actually, I went to an MMA class first, um, which Kev, my jiu-jitsu coach, took because he was uh, coaching MMA as well at the time. And uh, it was more grappling based, obviously, through Kev being a 
predominantly a grappler. He, he focused the class mainly around grappling, or at least the class that I went to. And then uh, from there, I thought, oh, this jiu-jitsu seems all right, and you don't have to get punched in the face either. So I'll give that a go. Jumped in the gi, started doing a, a few classes in the gi, and before I knew it, I, I, I caught the bug, and, uh, and I was there three, four times a week. Um, started off purely just training the gi to begin with, um, and then started doing a bit of no gi as well. And then after a year, um, well, it was a bit quicker than that, actually. After about six months, Kev then moved into the new combat and exercise, the new premises where it is now, the big, the big like warehouse facility. And I uh, spent another six months with him there before something happened between him and the owner. And uh, Kev and him went separate ways. Rich, the owner of Combat and Exercise, stayed where he is now, where my good friend Ryan Hodgetts took over as like, head, co head coach after a number of years. And Kev went around numerous different gyms um, before settling where he is now it, in Warwick, which is like 12, 13 years later. But wherever Kev sort of went after that, I, I sort of followed him. So. He was training in War in Coventry for a bit, and then he was he was coaching for quite a while at Stevie B's in Birmingham. I think you went over Stevie B's with me before. I never actually made it. No, no. no. well, I've that was been, the original. I've only been when, since he moved to Warwick, that was the original Gracie Bar at Birmingham where Bradley first taught Kevin. Like, um, and then Bradley moved into like a top of the range facility in Birmingham City Centre, and I think Kev adopted the old Stevie B's, which was a place called Sprawl and Brawl. It was like an MMA facility when Kev first took it over and then he turned it into, I think he named it Pariah at the time. Um, and then he was continuing to teach MMA and he ran like the MMA program alongside the Jiu Jitsu program. So I'd go over to Birmingham a couple of times a week and Warwick a couple of times a week. So like I say, I was training three, four times a week. Um, and yeah, it just sort of snowballed from there. And obviously like I, I, I was, I would never say I was like fat or anything like that, but I was out of shape. Like I, I, I wasn't like in any way fit or healthy. So I started training jiu-jitsu through, through like the, the encouragement and influence of Mark and, uh, and just started noticing positive change in my like, mentality and my attitude towards a lot of things. Like it just gave me a, a solid focus. And also I had some, I'm not going to go into on the podcast, but I had some personal issues going on at the time with, with my family. Um, my sister wasn't very well. Um, and uh, it gave me a good distraction away from that, something to focus on. And I felt like I wanted to be someone who my mum and dad didn't want to have to worry about when they ha they had everything on their plate that they had with with Hannah. Not that she's a burden or anything like that, but she was she was very poorly, so I didn't I didn't want them to have to worry about me. So I thought, right, you knuckle down, sort yourself out, and get a focus. And I started training jujitsu with Kev, and uh, yeah, here we are now, thirteen years later. Obviously, we can get into the the meat and potatoes of all that along the way on this podcast, but that's how I started doing mm -hmm. jujitsu, and then. When I, when, I, when, I, when I, like I say, got into it, I, I started going to the gym as well, a lot more lifting weights. I got in good shape physically. I, I felt more confident, like felt like the positive effects it was having in my life in general. I, I progressed in my career. I ended up moving away from Caden, getting a job with uh, Balfour BT, managing a small team. And that suited me quite nice because it was in Birmingham. I got given a company car, so I commute to Birmingham, work in Birmingham, and then travel to Stevie B's uh, where Kev was teaching afterwards. And uh, that was around the time then when I started competing a lot as well. So I was competing like, when I got, I, I competed a few times at white belt, but my blue belt years, I was blue belt for like two or three years. I probably throughout my blue belt years competed between, I don't know, 30 odd, about 30 odd times probably. And then I did a couple at purple belt and 
injured my back and have never competed since. But yeah, blue belt is where I really took competition quite, quite well, I say seriously, it was only regional level. I never went abroad or anything like that, but I was trying to, to compete at least once or twice a month. So mm. uh, it was more a thing like when I first started competing at white belt, I remember the first comp I ever did, I had the worst adrenaline dump ever and it sort of gave me a complex. Like I managed to win my first match, um, but then I had to have a second match and I think I got murked like 24 nil because I was literally paralyzed. Yeah. yeah, I was literally paralyzed. And I, I remember thinking after that, I can't ever let that happen again. Um, and I used to get so nervous for competition and stuff like, um, you just do. I, 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 like, I can't explain why, like Kevin never put any pressure on me or anything like that. I just... Like I say, I was putting a lot of time into it and it meant a lot to me. So I think I put the pressure on myself and I just wanted to be able to to at least try and replicate to some degree what I was doing in the gym. Like By no means was I the best guy in the gym. Kev's always had a solid team of guys, but I knew I had some in and Kev always encouraged me to compete and and like made me aware that I wasn't total shit. Do you know what I mean? So And, I, and I, obviously the way you perform in the gym with certain guys who you know are good and you see them go and compete and get on the podium I, I wanted to try and replicate that out in competition as much as I'd be I'll be honest I hated it at first I used to dread it I used to dread competing but I think like, everyone gets nerves to some to some degree and I think everyone will go for even even people that then are able to control those nerves very well at some uh, you know most of the time everyone will have matches or points whether it's early on in their career or later on in their career where they'll struggle with you know yeah I mean obviously I'm still really kind of in the inception of my competitive career in uh in nogi but um but yeah you know if, if we go back two years ago i let nerves affect me way more than i do now i still feel the nerves but i'm just able to channel, channel just, them better it's repetition i remember I, I spoke to kev about it one time and i was like sort of like opened up to him a little bit um where I was like, I, I get so nervous. I, I almost, I hate it. I dread doing it. Like, how does, like, how do I get over it? And I remember he said to me, he was like, it will never, ever go away, Jeff. All you'll learn to do is control it and you'll get used to those feelings. And the only way you can do that is by just keep throwing yourself into the fire. Keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And I know for a fact, Kev suffers with nerves. He won't mind me saying that. Like, he still competes to this day. Like, he's not far off 50 now and he's still doing the odd sub-only match and stuff like that because he believes it's good for his soul. He believives it's good to feel those emotions and, and dare yourself to do like, um, so uh, yeah, I remember he said that to me. So then I made it my focus, right, I'm just going to compete, win, lose or draw, whatever I feel like, I'm just going to make sure I compete every month. And I did that for about 18 months, two years, every month, at least once, if not twice. And I remember towards the end of that run, I moved up a weight class as well, because I was trying to cut to medium heavy and uh, it just, I looked great, but I felt like shit. Um, as soon as I moved up to heavyweight, I started to medal a, a fair bit more. Like, don't get me wrong, I've never been someone who's consistently winning gold medals. I won far more bronze and silvers than I ever did gold. I won a handful of gold medals, a couple. Um, but uh, I noticed when I moved up to heavyweight and took away that stress of watching what I was eating and everything else, combined with competing on a semi-regular basis, I got to the point where I was like actually looking forward to compete the nerves were still there, but it was more of excitement than it was anxiety. And I managed to like show a little bit more of myself. I never think I got to the point where I entered like what my mate Mark calls God mode, where you literally just move in. And, in the moment. and you're in the moment, you know what I mean? Without thinking the, just the training takes over, but I definitely had a few performances um, through that consistency and competing at my blue belt years where I felt like I could at least enjoy the, the occasion in the moment and yeah. And, 
win a few medals that way rather than everything just being a, a, a total like storm of negative emotion do you know what i mean and trying to pull through it i actually managed to enjoy a few competitions and and actually pull off some of the stuff i was i was able to learn in the gym with kevin the guys yeah 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 on that note um john jones said something before his first title fight with shogun that about, always the butterflies. Took, about the butterflies there's nothing wrong with having butterflies yeah. as long as you can get them in a flying formation kev used to call it harnessing the adrenaline he was like you'll always have adrenaline you'll always have anxiety and those things like it's fight or flight and it? it's a natural human instinct before conflict you've got you're either going to run away or you're going to face the music he says as long as you can harness those emotions and those feelings you can use it as fuel but if you let them take over you then that's when you get what happened to me in that first match where I was essentially paralysed. Like, I've never felt anything like it. I couldn't move, really. Like, I remember I come off the mat. I thought that was it. Um, I think I'd managed to win. I can't remember if I won by submission or points, but I won my first match. I remember in my first ever comp. And then I got off the mat and my mate Ryan Hodgett was like, yeah, you've got to go again in 15 minutes. you got another one. I was like, what? <laughs> I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And yeah, I just went out pathetic. It was absolutely... It was a hideous performance. I managed to not get subbed, but it was double figure points. And I was just laying there in the field position, just desperately trying to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, even someone like Kev, who's competed at a very high level in jiu-jitsu, everybody gets those nerves. And I think as well, um, particularly us being based in an MMA gym, obviously, you know, the danger of competing in MMA is, is far greater than jiu-jitsu. So... I don't think anyone's going to say that the the adrenaline and the nerves you get uh, for jiu-jitsu in general are going to be as high as MMA. But I don't think that should um, lead people to discount, you know, the nerves and adrenaline you, you do get from competing jiu-jitsu. You think about people that, you know, compete in any other sport, basketball, football, you know, tennis, that aren't even really contact yeah. sports. People get nerves. From oh, yeah, yeah. It's from so many angles. And so you've got the pressure that you put on yourself, you, you want to do your coaches proud, you want to do your teammates proud, you don't want people to think you're dog shit, for lack of a better word. And then there is also the very realistic possibility of jiu that you're going to get hurt, especially you know these days with heel hooks and stuff. You're only one move away from being not able to train, yeah. being not able to walk for three, six, nine months. So I was never element as nervous well. about getting, like, like you say, like, I... I, I I, I was never really very good at sport growing up. Like I'm not like a naturally talented person. I played football. I played football more for my dad. My dad never forced me, but I knew my dad was a good footballer. So I tried to follow in his footsteps and I was shocking at football. Like, I wasn't good at football at all. Um, but I used to get nervous before matches. Like just again, the pressure of performing. I did a bit of like growing up when I was a young kid, I did like a little bit of performing arts. Uh, like I, I was in a couple of plays, stuff like that again. You get nervous, you get nervous for that. forget nervous for that. So I, 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 I was always aware of like performing anxiety to some degree, but I don't think any, anyone, and that, this is no criticism of my coaches or the people who used to train with, I don't think anyone prepared me for, for competition and how it's different from the gym. Like, I think uh, it really was a shock to my system, like the intensity of having everyone watching and the referee. I don't know what I thought it'd be like, but I remember it, it caught me off guard. And yeah, that's where the adrenaline dump really really took took me over in that in that first or took over me in that first match um yeah yeah i sort of forgot where i was where i was going with that point but yeah that's uh, yeah that's that's yeah so I, th I think everyone's in the same boat when you start training jiu-jitsu or mma 
people tend to get the bug very quickly. And it sounds like you got that, like you said, you started training and everything snowballed and you mentioned how it started to affect your life positively in all other areas and you felt, you know, it was going to help with life at home, get to go to the house a bit and also uh, it was a medium to show your parents that they need, didn't need to worry about you. Do you think it had to be jiu-jitsu or something like that? Or do you think it could have been something else? Basically, what I'm trying to ask is, is there something inherent about grappling, about jiu-jitsu, about combat sports that you think had those positive effects? I always, um, like I always thought, like I remember I started watching the UFC just before I started training, maybe a few years before, I used to watch it with a few of my mates who have never done any training, but they were into it. I was like, go watch this. This is, this is sick. Like this was around about the days when um, like Anderson Silva was in his prime. Like he 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 was like absolutely schooling Forrest Griffin. Like I remember that fight. Um, that that it's all that's, about God mode. Yeah, that that, that is <laughs> yeah. the the guy. If you want to see a definition of God mode, like in live motion then it's Anderson yeah. Silver versus Forrest Griffin in it. You could say the same with Anderson Silver versus Rich Franklin Rich Franklin. Anderson Silver's definitely experienced God mode more than a few yeah. more than a few times. And um I I remember I'd always like not always, but I, I'd always been fascinated with combat, like as a boy, as a lad, I think it's in, embedded into us in some degree. Like definitely. you're into like action and stuff like that. I always like but I remember when I first started watching the UFC, I thought, yeah, that's cool. And something did stand out to me about the the grappling aspect because when you're growing up as well, you wrestle and you tussle with your mates and stuff like that. And I was always pretty good at play fighting as much as I was never good at anything else, like in terms of sport or anything. Like I, I, I could like hold my own in like a play fight and a bit of a tussle. So like I thought, oh, maybe if I actually learned some skills, like I could all right at this and then I obviously discovered jiu-jitsu and I thought this is what essentially this is like this is like yeah like high level play fighting do you know yeah. what I mean yeah. like, <laughs> it basically is yeah yeah I'd yeah. never I always say you have a jiu-jitsu match you don't have a jiu-jitsu fight yeah. like as much as some people call super fights and stuff I always say it's a jiu-jitsu match um but yeah I, I started training in there like with the influence of Mark as we discussed earlier I started training I think the my first couple of classes were MMA classes, or at least my first class was. But it was always the grappling that stood out. And the more I did, I remember the first time I rolled as well. Like it took me a couple of months maybe because I just did beginners classes. And then Kevin was like, oh, when are you going to do the advanced? So I stayed for the advanced. And I remember John Robinson, you know, John. Yeah, you? yeah. He was my first proper role. Oh, and really? I remember he armbarred me probably. It wouldn't surprise me if it was in double figures. Yeah, he just kept doing the same move. He didn't, I don't remember anything else, just the armbar. Kept armbarring me. He just get around my legs. And he was like a solid blue belt at this time, Joshua. Get around my, and at that time, there was no other belts in the gym other than blue belt. Kevin's a black belt, and then we had a small team of blue belts. And the blue and it sounds belts, like it was like a, a good team. So you had Ryan. Ryan Hodges. He was a white belt at the time, but he was like, yeah, he come in. Ryan started training when he was like 16. He was... He looked like Bruce Lee even back then, like shredded mm. up. Uh, I remember it like Phenom, even back then, 16-year-old lad tapping out men. Like I couldn't get over it when someone told me he was like 16, 17. Yeah. I was like 21 at the time. Um, but yeah, we had a good, we had a we had a solid, solid team of blue belts, and then a few white belts coming up to their blue belt. And then obviously Kev, who's who's amazing as well. But uh, the first time I rolled, I remember thinking like yeah, I'm going to get fucked up, but I'll do all right. I remember thinking that, and then John Robinson just absolutely freaked me. And, like, it was so humbling, but also, like, 
liberating in a way like oh yeah, yeah like this is like because those blue belts at the time as much as a blue belt now like they're all over the place aren't they like but at the time it was kev who was like god do you know yeah. what i mean and then you had these blue belts but even that seemed like an unattainable level at that time they seemed so much better than everyone else do you know what i mean like you'd watch them roll and they'd just be like killing anyone who wasn't a, a blue belt alongside them do you know what i mean and uh and yeah, I just as soon as I started rolling, that was when I was like, right, yeah, I want to, I want to get stuck into this and get better at this. And over time, the more hours you put in, obviously you start to to catch up with people and and get a little bit more success. And you're doing things technically and methodically, and you're actually thinking about what you're doing, like the problem solving aspect. And it was just, it was just cool, man. Like I just it just struck a chord with me, and I I enjoyed it. And obviously, all the other outside influences, like I've discussed, and the positive it was. A, positive effect it was having on the rest of my life it was just just a perfect storm and yeah the, the ball got rolling and and yeah eventually it led to where I am today but there's a lot that went on in between obviously yeah and you mentioned as well about Kev starting off in the Neaton but then moving to Birmingham eventually ending up in Warwick and you always followed wherever Kev went what was it about Kev that made you do that as opposed to just finding somewhere because Obviously, gyms were, you know, few and far between when you first started. There wasn't as many around there. There, there yeah. was a few, but yeah. Not but they would many. have cropped up. Yeah. So what what made you keep going to Kev? Um, just because he's sick, mate. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, he, he, he's not just good at jiu-jitsu. He's an amazing teacher. Like, he's, he's got a really, like if you want to say god given or if it's if it's trained or taught whatever it is he can he can translate technique to pretty much anyone like there are some people that are unteachable yeah like but the majority of people kev would be able to break through to and give them some kind of like satisfaction from being able to train jiu-jitsu he'd be able to tailor some kind of game towards them whether it's an older guy or a newer guy whether they were like mad athletic or whether they weren't maybe the most naturally talented like myself like he he would he would uh he would be able to like unlock like what jiu-jitsu worked for me i remember very early on he was just like close guard arm bar triangle you need to get good at that arm bar triangle from close guard uh delaheva as well that's your, that's your game just stick at that stick at that try and do that keep getting past like let me know what what people are doing we'll figure it out but that's your game stick with that and for the first two or three years of jiu-jitsu that's pretty much all i did but i got pretty good at that and that's still what i do even to this day do you know what i mean now i'm a black belt um been a black belt nearly three years now it'll be three years next year and i'd say a lot of what i do other than the inclusion of half guard like i play a lot more half guard now since my back injury um and that's down to jimmy jimmy like give me that like uh, string to my bow and I sort of developed that from the stuff he's shown me, um, but up until up until then, it was like close guard, Delahima, spider guard, maybe. Um, but that was like my my bread and butter, yeah, yeah. And then Ke- and, Ke- and Kev made me very aware of that early on. Like that's what with your body type, that's what you need to be looking to do. But then I've seen him do the same thing with people who look nothing like me or are nothing like me, and he's got them to be successful in competition and not even just competition, successful in the gym, being able to come to the gym, pull off moves. You know what I mean and and get some kind of satisfaction, enjoyment out of the train, not just being a, like there is inevitably going to be some period where you're the nail, but everyone at some point, if you persist long enough, gets to have a go at being the hammer. Some people establish themselves as a hammer, but other people, it's like, do you know what I mean? Like 
you get out what you put in. But Kev will all like. I think Kev will always be able to uh, get some form of mileage out of people if if they if they give him the time to to learn jujitsu from him. Yeah. So he's not only incredibly knowledgeable and able to converse that knowledge well. He's able to give everyone that's in the gym good individual coaching yeah, to he really gives help good, them specifically. Yeah, he gives good individual coaching. He's like he's funny and witty as well. That all yeah, plays a part. Yeah. Like he's like he's like yeah, he's got his own own way. Like um, like yeah, he, he he he's just sound to be around. Like and it, and that sort of is infectious on. The other students, like the, the core group of people that used to train at that time, they become good friends. I still speak to them now. Like they're some of them don't even train anymore. But if I bumped into them, like they're still a big part of my journey. Like them guys I started training with at the beginning, like uh, lad called Martin. I think he has started back up again now. This lad called Martin. I can't remember his second name. It might be Rollins, um, but he was like a beast at the time. Blue belt, got his purple belt, and then suffered an injury, and he was a, a fireman, so he had to sort of take his profession pretty seriously and if he was getting injured at jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu was going to have to be the thing that was going to give not his his career yeah. kind of thing but he was a great lad and like guys like um adam walker and ben rooney and people like that who i come up with and obviously ryan who i still speak to this day me and ryan have basically come up together although it'd be separately we've always remained pretty close like ryan's a great guy um and yeah they, they're all guys who have who've stemmed from from kev's influence yeah they're, they're all come from me. And even like the new wave guys now, like, well, Aiden Hugh and Shady, he, he started back at the old combat and exercise. He's an OG, I'd say. Um, obviously, good friends with Shady, come up with him. But like guys like Brad Boyd and Will Fellows, like guys that are more your sort of era, like uh, they've begun training with Ryan, but then they've also trained at places like Renegade and cross-trained all over the place. But they've, they've found a home with Kev as well. Like I know Brad especially. Um, goes over to, to Nexus quite a bit with, with Will and, and Shady. And uh, yeah, they all speak very highly of Kev as well, yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times your back injury. Talk us through that. When it happened in the context of your jiu-jitsu journey, the impact it had, how long it took to come back from the injury, any effects you still feel now and how it changed your game. So, Take us through it. Um, I was a purple belt at the time. I just got my purple belt, um, and uh, I was going through like a little bit of like a quarter life crisis at the time. Like I'd just come out of a long. I like, term. I like that term, a quarter life crisis. Yeah, I just, feel like I had a, a midlife crisis at twenty three. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I would have been around, but like, no, I was about twenty five, twenty six. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd just come out of a long term relationship. Um, I was getting fed up with my job. A few of my mates, my close friends, one of which was in the, uh, well, one directed the MC Fathead video. The other was in the MC Fathead video, Perm Dog, uh, James Bruce and Ryan Broom. They had been traveling for about a year and a half at this point and they were coming back to England, but then they were going to go again to South America. And they kind of got a mirror and said, like, come, come with us. Like, we're like, you're single now, sat that job off, you'll get another job. Like, we'll come back, save some money and let, like, come with us this next time. We're going to go to South America. So, I knew I was going to do that. Like I knew I was, I was going to do that. But my intention was to do a bit of training whilst I was out there. I was going to go and hopefully maybe get to Brazil, do some training in Brazil, that kind of thing. I just got my purple. I think I competed like at least a couple of times at purple. Um, but then I was training one day with my friend Dave Hill. Um, and we were just having like a morning session. I think it was a, a Friday morning. 
and, and sorry, quick side note, that's the Dave Hill that fought Conor McGregor. Dave Hill who fought Conor McGregor, yeah, yeah. Good friend of mine, Dave Hill. Um, I believe he's he's still training. He trains over at Kev's now, but uh, I haven't seen Dave for, I think the last time I've probably seen Dave was at his wedding, which was three or four years ago now. He's had two kids since then, but it'd be nice to bump into to Dave when I go to, to Kev's end of year grading, which is in a few weeks. Um, but I was training with, with Dave and uh, it was a Friday morning. I think I'd had the morning off work or something. Like that. It might have even been the Easter weekend. But I remember it was a Friday morning and I trained with Dave and then uh, didn't feel anything go in the session or anything like that. I'd had hiccups with my back before and my dad's had major back problems. My dad was a centre forward playing football, like jumping up in the air, heading the ball, landing back down on the ground. It deteriorates to the lower spine over time. My dad actually had a part of his vertebrae break off. And it was floating up and down his spinal canal. And I remember when I was a young kid, my dad being in absolute agony, screaming on the bathroom floor. I had an ambulance called out once or twice. Um, when he was in that much pain, he could barely function. And uh, eventually they got to the, the root cause of it and dislodged a bit of bone or what, marrow, whatever it was, floating up and down his spinal canal, touching on his nerve. So it was kind of hereditary as well. I'd had a few hiccups where I'd had like sciatica and like the pinch in my bum cheek where, you, where I feel like stiff and... And everything else but nothing compared to to this um and i remember i got home from that session with dave everything was fine didn't feel anything in particular go in the session but then the later the day got on i started to feel sore and sore and then well, i woke up the next morning and i was i was in agony like it was all shooting down my leg my ass te- my ass cheek was clenched up like i had proper like nerve pain you know what i mean down down my leg sciatica um and it was like someone shoved a red hot poker at the bottom of my spine I'd lost tons of mobility in my legs. Like I couldn't, like I couldn't lift my legs up if I was laying on my back. It was really, really bad. And uh, I knew from previous experience with with like similar back injuries um, that weren't as permanent that uh, diclofenac was the only painkiller that touched it. Um, so straight away, I got myself to the doctors. Oh, I need, I need diclofenac. They sorted me out a prescription. So I started taking diclofenac, and then uh, it didn't subside. Usually, I take that diclofenac for like a couple of weeks and uh, it'd go away but this this didn't subside i was needing to have diclofenac to sleep i was waking up on like clockwork every morning when when the, the painkiller would wear off and i'd start to feel the pain erupting at the bottom of my spine and like like i say me and my friends had planned to go on this trip to south america this was imminent i weren't cancelling that so i knew you didn't need a prescription uh, in south america to get to get drugs yeah so <laughs> i just went i took what i had with me and just carried on getting it out there from chemists and stuff, Diclofena, and I was living off the stuff for probably three or four times longer than I, I should have been using that kind of medication because it's no good for your stomach lining. It has a lot of negative. I was going to say, did you feel any effects? Well, my stomach lining is probably never going to be the same. But no, to be honest, I didn't feel any effects, luckily. Like when I ended up coming off it after an operation, I definitely did have like a teething period where I, I was in some like placebo effect where I felt like, the operation hadn't done its job and I could still feel the pain when really that would have just been the pain from healing. Do you know what I mean? But I went away traveling around South America with my mates, popping prescription pills, like getting by, just like keeping the pain at bay. And then after like, we went away for like five or six months, about five months, um, flew back and uh, got myself to to the doctors again, had an MRI. They noticed that my lower, their, disc in my back had like prolapsed and was protruding and was just wedged straight against the nerve causing me all this pain um like they never 
recommended anything, but I think looking back on it, I maybe should have tried some kind of physiotherapy, some kind of yoga, some kind of mobility work to try and shift it. But they just uh, ushered me straight into surgery, had a microdiscectomy. Um, I was on the waiting list for a short while. And then I had my operation, which was obviously more time off. Uh, I never knew, I, I never, I never knew if I would get back into jiu-jitsu, if I'm totally honest, because altogether I probably had about 18 months off. I probably had... And a, how old were you at this point? 26, 26, yeah. So, so that's, a, yeah, that's it's, an unlikely scenario to be in. You're having back surgery at 26 years old. Well, yeah, what's, what's going through your mind? Well, um, I just wanted it to stop. I just wanted the pain to stop. And uh, I, um, I got back from my trip around South America and... Uh, got booked in, had the operation. After a few months or a few weeks, I know like the pain disappeared and I was off the, the meds and, um, and, and yeah, like I was just sort of like, I was sort of like living for the weekend a little bit. Like, like I say, like going back to what I said earlier, I, I, I've never like gone off the rails or anything like that, but I definitely wasn't fulfilling what I felt like is my potential. I wasn't living a life which I felt like I, was fulfilled from like I was kind of just living for the weekend and again I got back into a job which was an okay job like had some good times there um but it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing do you know what I mean I knew that deep down it was just a means to an end at the time like another office job I was project managing um and uh, they were good enough to let me have the time off to have my surgery and everything else I'd only been with them a few few months at that point as well I ended up being there for four years um, but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I didn't know what was going to be happening during that time. And then again, Mark Timms, my, my, uh, my savior, shall we say, like he got me into it at the very beginning. And I remember he come back, he would, he was away at this time. I think he was living in China. Like he'd gone abroad to pursue, um, to pursue his kickboxing. He wasn't getting fights in the UK. Um, not as much as he would want to, uh, like I say, he, he wanted to compete as much as possible to, to familiarise himself with the nerves, the anxiety, to be able to perform at the level he was able to in the gym, that kind of thing, and and take his, his talents to, to the, the furthest they could go. So he went around Australia, America. I think he was actually located in China at this point, fighting pretty much every month. And then he'd come back for um, whatever reason that it was. He'd come back and um, it was like a brief interval before he went somewhere else, come back to see his mum and he started teaching a little bit of kickboxing at Spartans um, in Hinkley, which is a local like kickboxing school, like traditional kickboxing school where I live. And uh, he, 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 he doesn't ask, he tells Mark, because he was like, yeah, yeah, I think you should start teaching jiu-jitsu here. He was like, you should start teaching jiu-jitsu. I have a word with Kerry, the owner. He was like, well, we'll sort something out. And within a few weeks of him suggesting that, I was teaching jiu-jitsu there. Like I, st I started teaching purely just on a Tuesday night. And then that Tuesday night turned into a Tuesday and a Friday night. So, sorry, had you gone back to training at this point or you just no, went straight into No, no, coaching? no. Well, what happened was um, I, uh, he, 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 recommend, like, he basically got the ball rolling with that. So then I started going back to combat and exercise. Uh, I, like, I went to, to Ryan and started training with Ryan. And, mate, I was so rusty. Like, I was a purple belt, walked back in. I remember Brad Boyden was a white belt at the time. Brad's... Wicked man, like his beast. Yeah. Also, Will as well. Like they were both white belts at the time. Brad especially was giving me a hard time, but Will as well. Like Brad's a big, strong boy, but Will's like at the time was quite skinny. Um, and I was going 
training as a purple belt and getting my ass handed to me by these white belts, let alone like Ryan and all of his coloured belts and people like that. And it was kind of a make or break for me. It was like, you're either going to stick this out or you're going to just fuck this off completely. And I think if it hadn't been for the teaching alongside of it, I might have thought, this ain't really worth it. Like, my ego can't take this. Like, I've worked hard enough to get to this point. I'm not willing to do it all over again. But uh, with the encouragement of Ryan and the boys there I got close to, and like I say, I'm still good friends with to this day, I remember it actually if the the first time I actually got back into training after my back injury was uh, with with Shady with Aiden. He uh, I spoke to him about thinking about getting back into jiu-jitsu and he was doing a little bit of teaching himself just with a few of his mates at this uh, gym in Coventry called Red Corner and um, they'd basically rent the mat space and have a role and he was like, oh, just come along one Sunday. And it was him who who got me back into it and then he was like, oh, start coming to combat with, with me and Ryan. So then I started going back there. So I have Shady to thank for a lot and I have Ryan to thank for a lot for, for getting me back into it. And then guys like Will and Brad for like, as much as they used to beat me up and give me a hard time, like they become good friends and help me to, to, to carry on. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I started teaching at Spartans with the influence and, and push that Mark gave me. That started off as one class a week. It turned into a Friday and a Sunday morning. So a Friday night, Tuesday night, Friday night and a Sunday morning I was teaching by the end of it. And, uh, it was nothing against Ryan or anything like that. Like, Ryan's brilliant. Like, tons of time for Ryan. Like, right, I, I genuinely believe if Ryan had a coach, Ryan would be one of the best guys in the UK. But Ryan sort of took on combat and exercise. When, when Kev left, there was another guy called Rob Stevens, who was a black belt as well. He sort of took it on after Kev at combat and exercise, but he's an, he's an old guy. Like, and after a while, I don't think he could, his body could hack it anymore. I think he, he wasn't an enthusiastic and as passionate as he once was either. Um, so he handed that off to Ryan. So from like from like a high-end blue belt slash purple belt, Ryan was his own coach. And he yeah. was pretty much running that gym, coaching himself. He'd go certain places as well to train, but he was mainly just totally based out of combat he under himself. He didn't have no direct... Yeah, he didn't have no coaches, no tuition from an outside source, really. Um and he didn't drive either for quite a while, so we couldn't get places. He lived in the Neaton, he trained in the Neaton. And uh, yeah, I started back with him. But once I got the, the ball rolling again and back into the swing of things, I, I still popped in occasionally to train with Ryan. But I was like, right, I want to get back to Kev. So I started going back over to Kev, making the commute to Birmingham. Um, he was still based in Birmingham at Stevie B's at the time. So uh, I started going back over to Kev twice a week. And then I'd teach three times a week. And uh, that's where, like it really started to, to progress from there, yeah. Yeah. So how old are you at this point? 27, about 27. And what yeah. years, what year is this? Um, we're getting this, fairly close this is now 2000, to present day. Yeah, this is 2007, 2018. My, my girlfriend, my missus, Kelsey, was a massive influence as well. If, if, if it hadn't been for meeting Kelsey and getting with Kelsey after I got back with South America, like when I was like living the lifestyle I was, like just living for the weekends, not really going anywhere, anywhere, working a job I didn't, like as much as I wanted to do a good job and I liked the people there, it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. Like, it's, yeah, I, I always expected more from myself out of life. I just didn't know what it was until I started coaching. And then I thought, like, as soon as I started coaching and having a little bit of success with the lads at competitions and stuff and built that camaraderie between the team. Because at first, it was literally just Max and Martin that I was teaching. I had two or three students, which turned into five or six students. And that small core 
little group that depended on me and, and kept showing up, they got me to where I am today. So there's a lot of people I have to thank, Owen. A lot of people I have to thank. Obviously, Kev would not be here without Kev. Ryan Shady, Will, Brad. But then Max Young and Martin Shipley, like, without them, like, yeah, like, I would have given up on the coaching because it wouldn't have been worth it. I was paying to teach at one point. Like, the mat high was 15 quid. I charged people £5, five pound a class and there was two people turning up. So I was paying a fiver to teach. But then along with Kelsey as well, like, when you, when you meet the right person, you don't just want to do well for yourself. You want to do well for them. You want to be the best version of yourself for them. And Kelsey always encouraged me, always pushed me. She wasn't one of these girls who'd moan when I went training. She saw, well, she kind of met me when I, that was who I was. And like, she at no point ever tried to like change me or, or convince me otherwise. And I've been quite lucky because like the, the, the girl I was with before Kelsey never really discouraged me from training or anything like that. But, um, Kelsey, especially when I got back into it with everything I was going through, like obviously my confidence was low and everything else she did encourage me to keep on training and, and yeah, she was, she was a big motivator and supporter and, 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 and component in getting me to where I am today. Yeah. As a, obviously along with, with Jimmy, when, when we get to the point that I meet Jimmy, yeah, which ain't, ain't far off from where we're talking now. Yeah. Yeah. But on that note, some you, you say it all the time and it really sticks with me because it's so true. You always say girls, for young men, especially, you know, those of us that are dedicated to training, they'll either be the biggest blessing or the biggest burden. Yeah, a woman in this game, between. and it doesn't necessarily mean combat sport, but combat sport especially, it's, it's a selfish game. Yeah, you need, you need to be all in or all out. If you actually want to do anything, it's different if you're just doing it for a hobby and to just get out of the house a couple of nights or a couple of hours a week. But if you want to do this properly, You've got to be all in. You can't be one foot in, one foot out. It's too dangerous. There's there's too many components to it. It's it's too hard. It's too difficult. You've got to be all in. And uh, a good girl will 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 be alongside you and 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 serve a purpose of motivating you, and encouraging you. The wrong girl will distract you with either external drama or wanting you to herself by not understanding the process. And then I, I'm not saying this is like a woman hating thing, like. Why would no, a woman? No, why would a woman understand why a bloke wants to go and roll around with his mates, sweaty and like <laughs> teabagging? a good point. Other blokes and doing whatever it is we do, punching lumps out of one another. Why would they get behind that? Like that's. But it takes a special sort of girl to to maybe put aside her own emotions and her own wants and needs to see the man she loves and think he actually he actually wants to do this and he's a better person because of this and I and I want to support that and I want to get behind that and. Uh, and that's what Kelsey did for me. And that's why I see the good girls with the lads that I, I teach or train alongside do for them as well. Like uh, the ones who are constantly in their ear, nagging, draining, everything else. Like it, it, it has a negative effect. A happy fighter is a, is a dangerous fighter. And if you constantly have an external stress and everything else, then it, it will eventually creep its way into, into your training, into your performances, into your life, just in general. Like you, you can't be around that negative energy and whatever you do, let alone this, like it will, it will break you down. Like that toxic form of relationship will, will break you down. Whereas the right sort of woman will encourage you and support you to, to do well. And, and by encouraging and supporting, it doesn't mean Kelsey was like patting my back every day and mm. go on, go on, babe, <laughs> you can do it. But like you, you see what you've got with someone like that and how happy you are and how happy she makes you. And you want to be the best version of yourself for that person so you, yeah. you you do with whatever you can to fulfill your potential not just for you for you 
for them as well. You're not just working for yourself anymore. You and I imagine when you have kids, it well, it grows be. tenfold. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It grows tenfold. Yeah, I've got a missus and a dog, and I want to be the best I can be for them. Like let alone if I ever have kids. Yeah, I see it with with guys like Jimmy, like that dad power. Do you know what I mean? They call it the dad power, mm. don't it? Like he's doing it for his kids. He's not just doing it for himself. Like he's doing it for his kids. Yeah, he's setting up their future. He's he's setting. He's, he's setting an example. He's trying to be the role model he would have wanted at that age. Do you know what I mean? For them, like, and he never ever pushes his kids to to do what he does. And like, I think Georgia's done a little bit. She's obviously a, a teenage girl now, going off doing her own thing. But Junior's started to do a little bit more now. And uh, never once has Jimmy forced him to, but just through the positive influence and and role model that he is, um, and like what he is in terms of his career and everything he's doing. I think Junior now is getting to an age where he can respect and appreciate that and think, you know what, my dad's pretty cool. I want to be like my dad. Yeah. On the topic of Jimmy then, you've started coaching at Spartans. How did you end up meeting Jimmy? How did you end up at what was then Hardy Warhead? Yeah. So again, Mark, <laughs> again, <laughs> Mark, again. Mark again, he said, he, I remember I was teaching a lad called Corin at the time and um, great lad really talented for whatever reason life got in the way and he, he sacked it off after a little while but props to Corin if you're listening I doubt he is but yeah he's a good lad man um but he he wanted to fight MMA he started doing a couple of PTs with Mark when Mark was back and doing that little bit of coaching Sorry, just on a, another side note as well with Mark um I feel like it's important to say like Mark is such a high level kickboxer isn't he you know he really knows what he's talking about he trains you know with Izzy with yeah, Alessandro so and, and Hooker and all those guys out in Australia, Mark sorry, Timms, New Zealand now, doesn't he? Mark Timms, yeah, one of my childhood friends I've known since I was literally six or seven years old. Like, we pretty much grew up together through school and through life. Um, he, uh, his mum's great, but he didn't come from a lot. You know what I mean? It's not like he was uh, come from a privileged, privileged background or anything like that. He uh, he grew up struggling, should we say? Um, in the most respectful way, like his mum did everything she could for him, but it's just what it was. Like come from, like he had a relationship with his dad, but he was based with his mum and everything else. And he grew up and he grew up fending for himself. And Mark was a rough lad growing up. Like he, he was like he was he was a tough lad. He's always been hard. Mark has yeah. And um, he uh, he he got into to kickboxing. Um, like he, he made the decision to change his life for whatever reason. Like. Maybe one day you could have him on here, but he, he made the he, he yeah. made the decision to change his life for whatever reason. And at first, that started with education, going to unit, going to college, going to university, and then through university, he started training at K Star. And I think once he found K Star, the idea he had of becoming a journalist or whatever it was at the time quickly changed, and he wanted to to do this. And uh, he uh, he had a number of fights in this country, and then went into pursue his pursue his passion overseas and. Went and trained out in America, Australia, China, and eventually through in China, he uh, he actually fought Israel Adesanya in a, in a tournament in New Zealand when he was when he was living in Australia, I think. And they became quite close after the fight, um, and uh, remained like in touch. And when Mark was in China, I believe the story is Israel went out to train in China, and their relationship grew, and then it sort of got to the point where Mark needed to know where he was going to go next. It turned out to be New Zealand. And uh, he ended up going to New Zealand, working at Dan Hooker's gym to begin with through Israel's reference. 
oh, there's a guy coming, he'll be a great kickboxing instructor for your gym, which Dan Hooker had opened at the time, which was Combat Academy. I don't think it's there anymore. But uh, that's where Mark first started off when he got to New Zealand. And then eventually he uh, embedded himself into the fabric of CKB and he started coaching alongside the other coaches there, padding his, uh, padding Israel, sparring Israel, sparring the other guys. Um, he went out to Miami when uh, Israel knocked out Poetan. He's cornered all like the, the lower level fighters all the way up to the, to, to the top guys. He's had dealings in their camps and inputs in their camps. And to see where he's come from, like, like I say, like, yeah, I've got, I've got very few heroes in my life. Like I don't, like, I don't throw that word around, but, uh, Mark Timms is definitely like a, alongside my dad and, and someone like Jim, I'd probably say Mark Timms is one of my real life heroes. Yeah. To see where he's come from to where he's at now is yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, can't say enough good things about Mark. But yeah, going back to the point. It was down to him again. It was down to him again. Corin had started having a few PTs with Mark and um, he uh, he wanted to fight MMA and Mark had got wind that there was a new gym opening in Colville called Hardy Woolhead, which was going to be opened up by uh, UK MMA veterans, Jimmy and, um, and, uh, and Dan Hardy, Jimmy Woolhead and Dan Hardy. And uh, he sort of recommended the place to Corin, and um, Corin then started doing a bit of grappling with me, a bit of kickboxing with with Mark, and we were kind of waiting for the grand opening of Hardy Wallhead. Like that, the news was out there that it was opening, but it, was, it wasn't open yet. And uh, and then eventually it opened. I think it opened uh, 2018. Corin migrated across there, started training in the mornings and stuff. Still was doing his stuff with me. Mark had gone back overseas at this point, and. Uh, and then, yeah, I thought I'll go over there and do a bit as well because I started doing a bit of kickboxing and stuff with Mark at this time when he was teaching back in the UK. I'd never really done any strike. I'd done, I'd done bits and bobs here and there, but I'd never consistently done any form of striking. And Mark sort of, like, I know was useless at that to start off with as well. Jesus wept like that. I think Mark <laughs> thought I had dyspraxia or something. But uh, he got me into doing a bit of kickboxing, which obviously I still like to train at least a couple of times a week to this day. And... Um, I'm very good at it, but I enjoy doing don't it. Don't say yourself yeah, short, I mean, man. Don't let, you know, um, what Jimmy's going to say get in your ear. No, mate, Jimmy, Jimmy if anything. Yeah, I know. When Jimmy's talking seriously, yeah, he, he gives he, you the respect he deserves, but he, he, uh, he heckles you plenty. As yeah, well. yeah. It's all affectionate. Though. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I started doing a bit of kickboxing with, with Mark, and then I thought, oh, well, I can go and do kickboxing at Hardy Wallhead and maybe do a bit of grappling there, a bit of grappling at Kev's, and then teach at Spartan. So then by this point now, I was training like every day. And uh, I'd only ever in the past, just due to the distance I was traveling and other commitments in my life, but only ever managed to train like three, four times a week. Now I was either teaching or training every day. So I started doing a bit of kickboxing over at, uh, at Hardy Wallhead and jumped on a couple of grappling classes. And then I think uh, my mate, Danny Turnbull, had uh, messaged Jimmy privately on Instagram um, just saying like, oh, I've got, I know you've got a gym opening up. I didn't know Jimmy or anything. He just did it like to be sound, I think. Like um, as much as Danny can be a wind-up merchant, he's always got my back. Do you know what I mean? And he, he, he knew deep down that I was taking the teaching thing kind of serious. And um, I think he messaged Jimmy, made me made Jimmy aware that I was coming over. I was already going over and to have a chat with me sort of thing. I think Danny might have been over once or twice himself as well. I remember being at Hardy Wall over Danny before. Danny did a bit of tie or kickboxing there as well. He's done a bit of jiu-jitsu with me. He's, he's dabbled, Danny has. Um, and then Corin had brought me up to Jimmy as well while I'm doing my jiu-jitsu with this, this lad called Joe. 
And then one thing led to another and me and Jimmy got chatting. And then I remember he collared me in the, in the garage up the road from uh, Hardy Woolhead one day. He was, just, uh, he was just about to have his second fight in Bellator after his comeback with uh, the Italian bear, I think it's Petrini. And uh, it was like the week before the fight. And I remember he said like, let me get this fight done. And then we need a chat, like a proper chat. I've heard some stuff about you. Um, and and, and he, he, at the time, Jimmy was pretty much coaching every class. He was like, I, I could do with the help. Um, so he fought, Petrini won, uh, broke his hand in the fight, still managed to win. Pretty amazing performance. And um, he, uh, yeah, he, he, he had that conversation with me after the fight. He was a man of his word and said, look, cancel your membership. I want you to start teaching here a couple of times a week. And at first I just taught two gi classes twice a week. Um, and uh, yeah, I just had my free membership. He was like, look, do you want to do any PTs, anything like that? Use the facility, it's yours to train, it's yours to PT. I don't expect no commission, just teach from there. You can have your membership on the house, teach those classes, and it will be a, a weight off my shoulders sort of thing. Because like I say, he was doing it all at the time. So then I started doing that and uh, familiarised myself with all the guys that I already wall led. And uh the rest is history, really. Do you know what I mean? Like he just showed for whatever reason. I don't know why. Um, he'd watched a little bit of me on Instagram, I think, from what Danny had sent him and from what Corin had said. But he showed just an almost deluded amount of belief in in, in employing me. As well, his... yeah, it all happened incredibly quickly. Yeah. Because um, if I'm correct, I think the gym opened April 2019, and I started coming. September 2019 is when I first came. And when I rocked up on that first day, you know, as far as I was aware, you'd been an integral part and were an integral part of this gym, you know what I mean, from the very get-go. It didn't seem as though this was a coaching position you just took on. No, and it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it was like that. Jimmy made me feel like that straight away for whatever reason. He's seen something in me that I don't even think I've seen in myself. Um, and whether it was valid or whether it was a deluded level of belief, he just employed me as head jiu-jitsu well, coach valid. at his gym. Valid, man. Look, at, look at where we are today. And, uh, are and yeah, and yeah he, he just I was working a full-time job at the time, so I'd teach there in the evenings, but then I'd do a few classes striking and stuff with him. And uh, before I knew it, he was like handing over no-gi classes to me. Uh, so I taught a couple of no-gi classes there. I was teaching the gi regular classes there and uh, just sort of like, again, snowballed from there. And in the end, it took up that much of my time that I had to part ways with Spartans. I'll always have like time for, for Kerry and the opportunity she gave me. Very grateful of it. She kick-started my coaching career, should we say. And then Jimmy blossomed it into, into fruition and allowed me to be in the position now where I do what I love full-time without having to rely on any other form of income. Obviously, Andy and Brett are, massive, are a massive part of that as well. I owe them a massive, massive amount of thanks for opening up the gym up the road and giving me the position of head jiu-jitsu coach and paying me a salary, which allows me to do this full-time now. But yeah, just a lot of people, for whatever reason, believing in me and, and pushing me and allowing me to have the opportunities and chances that I've been given. I, I think a lot of it is down to luck, mate, to be honest. I think a lot of it is down to luck. Yeah, like I know what I'm on with to some degree, but there's like, there's guys out there I wouldn't even mention myself in the same sentence as. Do you know what I mean? No, don't, don't disclaim yourself. But that is, like I'm, said, not, like, I'm not trying to be... You. I, know, I know you're not trying to be I'm honest. not trying to yeah, be over, yeah. overly humble or anything like that, but like there's, there's guy like, like someone like Ryan. I think Ryan's awesome you know what i mean i think ryan's awesome keb's awesome i mean yeah they've got their own gyms as well but like uh yeah just guys on like the level of jimmy like 
I'm not right. Yeah, I don't, I don't put myself in the same sentence as someone like that. What he's achieved, lifelong martial artist, 50 plus pro MMA fights, judo black belt, BJJ black belt, representing England at youth level for judo. Do you know what I mean? He, he could go and compete now. He, he, he talks shit and plays it down. He's like, oh, I'm just an MMA guy. He could go and do ADCC trials. And if he trained for it, I'm pretty sure he'd meddle in it. And he could yeah, compete on a show like Polaris and Grapple Fest, no problems, and, and beat totally legit seasoned jiu-jitsu guys with with what like what skills he has. I have no doubt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of luck, circumstance, being in the right place at the right time. It's not what you know; it's who you know. Everything sort of just fell into place, and over a few years of being at Hardy Wallhead, gradually like meeting. Zach and Jake, who are Brett and Andy's sons, getting into coaching them. And then Brett and Andy wanting to invest and open up the gym up the road. It's led me to where I am now, coaching coaching full-time jiu-jitsu and, and having a fair bit to do with the MMA as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've, I've cornered tons of fights now, like pro, amateur, uh, the, like IMAF level, the, the Four Nations. I've, I've, I've been pretty lucky. I haven't cornered at a UFC event yet, but I'm sure... Hopefully sure at some point, job. like fingers crossed, one of the lads is going to make it make it to, to that stage. But I've cornered on pretty much every show on the regional scene and uh, and yeah, professional amateur. I've I've been lucky to to be able to to have those experiences. Yeah, and that, that's that's all down to, to just Jimmy, for whatever reason, like yeah, giving me the opportunity. Do you know what I mean? Wanting me there seeing, alongside seeing him. You, yeah, 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 yeah. And I wanted to. Yeah, go into that specifically. The transition between teaching jiu-jitsu, well, like strict jiu-jitsu, strict grappling, and then obviously now you're a grappling coach at an MMA gym. Obviously, we have you know straight grapplers, people like myself that compete just jits, but we're predominantly an MMA gym. Talk me through that transition of coaching strict jits to coaching jiu-jitsu for MMA, and then the process of going into cornering MMA fights and how that's different from, say, coaching a jiu-jitsu comp? Yeah, so um, I uh, I started out teaching in the gi, which obviously is not specific to, to MMA at all. When I started coaching at Hardy Wallhead, it was my, fir- my first two classes Jimmy gave me to, to me was, was the gi. And although I started in the gi and my roots were in the gi, it's not really overly uh, familiar to MMA, is it? Um, the Brazilians or some of them like to make out, oh, you must train in the gi, I'm not going to put It makes you better, yeah. uh, you know, training that, in the gi makes you better in no gi. But I, I think th- now is that, that's a myth that's been yeah, I think to some level when you first start training, gi, no gi, just grapple. MMA, just grapple. Judo, wrestle, just grapple and you'll, you'll accelerate. But if you only want to compete in no gi, you don't need to train in the gi. If you only want to fight MMA, you train in the gear if you want to, but like it's not going to make that much of a difference. When you're first learning the fundamentals, getting to that like blue belt level, um, I think yeah, gear no gear, just do as much as you can, as often as you can. But uh, yeah, I started t- I started coaching in the gear, um, and just from like listening to Jimmy and and and, uh, and I've always been a fan of MMA. Do you know what I mean? And Kev's Kev taught MMA for quite a while as well, so just picking up on little coaching cues and things that I'd heard him say or, or things that I'd, I'd seen him show and listening to Jimmy as well. Because Kev, like, yeah, he, 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 uh, he only coached MMA for a few years. And then I think he just realised, like, the jiu-jitsu was far more profitable and far more popular. He just eventually, like, just, yeah, just, yeah what would be the word, dissolved the MMA part of his 
of its coaching and just focused totally on the jiu-jitsu. Um, but uh, he did all right. Kev did. He like there weren't many fighters that 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 that, that lost when he was uh, he was coaching that little team. Like he got Chris Mia um, to uh, well, I think Chris was a pro when he started, but he got he, he got Chris Mia to to win fights on Bama and and shows like that. And he had a number of other pros fight for him. Um, and then his amateur record was pretty much flawless. We lost a handful here and there, but quite a couple of times I remember. Uh, the prior team going like three and zero or, or four and one or two and zero or do you know what I mean on, on shows like that? So uh, I'd I'd had like an insight through Kev and then obviously started training with Jimmy and listening to Jimmy and stuff like that and obviously through my love of MMA and watching the sport religiously since the age of like nineteen twenty had a good ten years by this point of like being able to tell the difference between a grappling match and, a, and an MMA fight and I think. The main difference is in grappling, obviously, it's about scoring points and there's like a massive focus on submissions because it's the only way you can you can yeah, finish you're your chasing match. The, you're yeah. prioritizing, depending on the rules, you're prioritizing points heavily or you're really chasing those submissions. And submission attempts, and, you know what I mean? Yeah. Submission attempts, yeah. Whereas in MMA, it's a lot about position before submission, like finding positions where you're comfortable to strike from, putting them into positions where they're working harder than you there's not really guard passing this, which is people do pass the guard and, and work from side control or pass them out or whatever. A lot of work like is done. And I learned this like very much from Jimmy because he's a master of this, like locking someone down in their half guard and, and forcing them to play half guard. You see Gordon Ryan do a similar thing in straight jiu-jitsu. He'll force people to play half guard because that's the guard he feels most competent passing. I believe a lot of Gordon's systems of passing come from the half guard. So he forces people to play half guard, even if it's not really their type of game and uh, we'll pass them from there and in MMA Jimmy will win a takedown get to get to half guard and just find the position in the half guard where he can chip away with strikes get people frustrated get people to try and er react erratically that's where he might look to wrap up his submission or land a more devastating shot or progress to the next position but he always says you're connected in the half guard you're you're attached to them. If you start, when it's slippy and, and, and wet, if you start trying to go bare-chested with someone inside control, they can spin. Like MMA fighters, they're tenacious, they're strong, they're powerful. They can spin out the back door, they can roid up on top, they can reverse you. So just learning to control someone on top, getting between the cage. And uh, yeah, like learning the positions where you can, because ground and pound, like I think people think ground and pound is just like, winging it do you know yeah. what i mean there's a there's donkey kong a, yeah ground and pound is a skill it's an art form yeah. as much as striking on the feet as much as grappling as much as wrestling on the wall each component of mma has uh as its as its own skill set which needs to be applied and um like through training with jimmy i got to 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 learn a lot on the wall and stuff only now am i really getting to a point where i feel competent on the wall and i've been training with jimmy nearly five years but i remember being a grappler like you'd think like well as soon as they get older than I'll be all right but you go against these MMA lads who are well versed on the wall like you ain't getting them down yeah you ain't getting them down like with just what you know on the floor no chance and even out in the open the wrestling and jiu-jitsu like crossover like uh he, 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 just it's because you're good wrestling. yeah just because you're good on the ground doesn't mean yeah doesn't mean that you're going to be you're good on, going to be good on the feet grappling. Like you get a good wrestler can stall out a jiu-jitsu ride. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and then when you add the striking to takedowns, that's another dynamic altogether. So there's there's wrestling, like 
without strikes, straight grappling, and then there's wrestling with strikes. And a lot of the time, wrestling with strikes, although it's more dangerous, it's a little bit easier to get in on your shots because you can faint the jab or start to throw shots to the head to get the, to bring the hands up. It opens up the hips, you can shoot in. So all of this stuff I, I learned through training with Jimmy and, and getting my ass beat and eventually like starting coming in in the mornings and stuff during COVID, like when I had a few uh, years where I was dotting between different jobs and stuff, I had quite a turbulent time, but I actually got to train quite a lot during that time, especially when stuff started to open up again. I had the uh, I, 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 I had the opportunity to train at the old Hardy Wallhead full time. Like I wasn't getting a wage or anything then, but I was obviously living off PT money, that kind of thing, living at home. So I didn't really have any bills or outgoings. And I got to train with the pro team a lot in the morning for a good six or so months. And during that period, I got my black belt as well off Kevin. So that was uh, that was a good time where I picked up a lot. And then obviously since I started here at the beginning of the year, every morning I'm in listening to Jimmy, who's like, yeah, he's got a wealth of knowledge. He's like a godfather of UK MMA, and he like listening to how he, he he teaches and how he shows things, and watching him spar as well. Because a lot of what he does in his spars, like I don't think he's he's managed to uh, break it down to teach it because his his coaching career is very young. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I think a lot of what he does still, even though he's an absolutely phenomenal coach and has brought guys up to a fantastic level. I've like got Dean Truman to a world championship level coach multiple amateur fighters, multiple pro fighters, he he still, I don't think, is on the level of the fighter that he was. And then, although um, Jimmy might not have reached the heights that some of his his teammates and people did at the time during the roughhouse era and stuff like that, um, I, I always say a lot of why Jimmy didn't get to where he was is because of circumstance and situation, not because of ability or skill. Like... Uh, He's had a lot go on. Like Jimmy should have definitely have fought in the UFC and been a solid top, top ten guy in the UFC. Would he have won a world title? I don't know. I don't know. But I definitely think he's good enough to. I definitely think he's good enough to win a world title in in the UFC or Bellator in his prime. And even now, the bloke's a beast. You know what I mean? Yeah. The bloke is an absolute beast. It's just, yeah, his own head sometimes has let himself down and and circumstance and situation. But like guys like Dan Daly. Andre, they all had their stint in the UFC. Jimmy's come a little bit late. It's it's unfortunate, but I hope that he can reap the success he deserved in his in his fighting career and his coaching career. But I don't think you've even scratched the surface of his coaching career just yet. I think there's a lot more to come from that. Yeah. You mentioned getting your black belt. Yeah. Let's touch on that. What was that moment like? What did getting your black belt mean to you? Um, to your journey. Yeah, it was. I don't get me wrong, like I didn't like break down in tears or anything yeah. like that. But uh, I'm glad I could get it off Kev. I'm glad I've got every belt off Kev. Like every belt I've ever had, I've had off Kev, and I'm pretty proud of that. Like um, I hope that a few of you guys get every belt off me. You know what I mean? So we have that relationship through and through. Like, well, no matter what I've been through, wherever I've gone, like whatever love lost or love gained from training in jiu-jitsu, I've always gone back to Kev. He's been there every step of the way, and. As much as like, I don't see much of him anymore. Just through, um, like obligations and stuff I have at this gym, and not being able to get over there as much as I'd like to. I hope Kev knows I like, I wouldn't be here without him, and I wouldn't have wanted to have got that black belt off anyone other than Kev. So it was a lovely fruition of a decade of of hard work. Do you know what I mean? And then after, uh, uh, or or when I when I got the belt as well, like Jimmy, Josh. Uh, Riley, Max, they all came along and it, and then I had people there like 
Shady, Will, Brad, they were all there. The only person who was missing, unfortunately, was Ryan Hodgett, just because, again, he's got his own gym. It would have been lovely for him to have been there, but like, um, it was great just to have all them people there to, to, to see me reach that milestone. And, um, and yeah, like they, they say, the journey starts at Black Belt, don't they? That's, that's what they say. So, uh, yeah, I believe now. Do you, like, feel, do you feel that? Um, I don't really put too much emphasis yeah. on the belts, to be honest. I, I'd rather be... Like I always tell like white belts who are nagging for a blue belt or hinting at a blue belt, be the best white belt you can rather than yeah. the worst blue belt. You know what I mean? Belts don't matter, but I was the same when I, them. Yeah, yeah. When, when I when I was younger, like you do, you want to be like especially that blue belt. Like, so that's the first like bit of respect you get. You know what I mean? You're not just a white belt anymore. You do, you like you but Kev always taught me as well, everyone has their own glass ceiling. Someone might get a blue belt before you, but you might smash them in the gym. That's, it's very subjective, is it? Yeah. And I and I think that's how it should be. Um, not everyone should get, you know, it, as much as they originally were objective standards, nowadays you have people coming in who are just hobbyists yeah. that want to train now and then. Then you have people that want to get to ADCC. What a blue belt is to a hobbyist is going to be, yeah. it should be, I think, very different to what a blue belt is. It's learning the, the, the core, fu- it's, yeah, it's, it's sorry to interrupt, but it's learning the, the, the core fundamentals of grappling. That's basically what it symbolizes that you've got an answer from, a number of different positions on top and on bottom. That's like what I believe a blue belt symbolises now. When someone like Jack Enshaw gets their blue belt, it's going to be a little bit different. Or when Josh Hamilton gets his blue belt, it's going to be a little bit different to when, I'm not going to name anyone, but just a hobbyist who comes twice a week gets their blue belt. Like As much as a hobbyist who comes twice a week could get to a pretty decent level where they're able to give someone like Josh, Jack, yourself work, like their goal, their ambition, their potential is on a totally different trajectory to yourselves, you know what I mean? So, um, like some guys get held back a little bit longer who maybe feel like they should be graded a little bit sooner, but it's only because you want to see them can tick every box at white belt or tick every box at whatever belt they're at before you offer them that promotion. So Kev always used to say, like, when you get your blue belt, you can hang as a blue belt. You're not just going to be starting at the bottom of the barrel again or bottom of the ladder, whatever the saying is. You're going to be going in there with the ability to win matches. And then over time, as you grow into your into your blue belt, you'll start winning medals. You know what I mean? And the same goes for a purple, a brown, and a black. I believe now, like a lot of these guys, like you might even say blue belts, but definitely purple belts. There's purple belts out there who could hang with black belts. Touch, yeah, it's, it's, black kind belts. Of a, it's kind of a crazy mix now, isn't it? Like that Owen kid, that what that, that Owen kid who won trials. What a phenom! Yeah, he is. Like, he's, yeah, yeah, he's absolutely unreal. You know what I mean? And he's only just got his brown belt. Yeah. He's only just got his brown belt. When realistic, you know what I mean? And again, that's it. It's almost diverging now. The belts, uh, you're, you know, you're very um, specific technicalities of your game. But I, I think this is, sorry, this is a bit of a side note, but I think a big change is happening in, jiu- in jiu-jitsu where before people, you know, took on jiu-jitsu as a hobby um, and then if they ended up being good at it, then they'd yeah. go pro and make something out of it. Whereas now, because it's becoming more of an established sport, people that are athletic, that are young and thinking, I want to I wanna be an athlete as a career, you're getting people in that bracket now thinking, okay, I want to choose jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Whereas before, it wasn't an athlete sport. It was, oh, I'm, I want to do jiu-jitsu for jiu-jitsu. I'm doing it as a hobby. Oh, I'm pretty good at it. You know, one thing leads to another. Whereas now, people are going in with the intention of, I want to be an athlete. I want to go pro. And because of that, you're getting people that are developing very quickly. So even though they don't have the all the P's and Q's to be given a black belt yet, 
they're so athletic and they're so good at applying the techniques that they know that in competition, you know, on the stages where it matters, they're already winning at the black belt level, like yeah. Aaron Jones or like Nicky Rod, who's, is he still a purple belt, Nicky Rod? No, I think he's a brown belt. He's now, a brown yeah. belt now, but he, yeah. you know, he got silver, he got a silver medal at the ADCC World Championships when he was a blue belt. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, I think, uh, however long ago, some people might even like the old school Brazilians might have this mindset now, but 20, 25 years ago, I think you wouldn't get your blue belt until you were tapping the other blue belts in the gym. Whereas now, like, I see a guy like Kieran Full, Max Young, who's training consistently every day, competing. I see them on a different trajectory to someone who just comes in a couple of hours a week to get away from the missus, to release some endorphins, go home a little bit happier. I judge Kieran and Max on how, they're, how well they're doing in competition. I judge that guy on, okay, he's got an answer from on bottom now. He knows at least what to do there. He knows what to do here. Oh, he's, he's catching the odd submission now and again. He's learning the dialogue of jiu-jitsu. So, yeah, he's been training a certain amount of time. I think it's time to, to give him his blue belt, yeah, to give him, yeah, to give him that acknowledgement of his, of his progress. Whereas I think the other lads who are actively competing, fighting, whatever else, I don't think they're that or as bothered about the belt. Like, some might disagree with me, but I know for a fact, like, Max, like, Max just wants to be good at jiu-jitsu, like, yeah. And uh, it's more for me to acknowledge his effort when I give him that belt. Like that's why I did that little speech for him when I gave him his purple belt. Because someone like Max, along with many other figures and characters on the way, he's an integral part of why I am where I am. And now, like when me and Max roll, mate, it's it's pretty damn close. Do you know what I mean? Like I remember he come to the to Spartans when he first started as a little fat boy. He didn't even want to come. It was his mate who brought him. Mm. Um, and uh, his mate ended up spinning it off and, and Max uh, carried on and he's where he is now, coaching, competing. He's not competing in a long time. He's got kids, he's got two jobs that he holds down. He's got a lot of priorities and commitments. But uh, yeah, Max is someone who trains for the love of the sport. I don't think he's that bothered about belts. Obviously, one day it'd be brilliant to, to give him his black belt and for us both to be, on black, to, to be black belts on the mat, having come all this way together and everything else. But uh, I think Max is just in it for... Like yeah, for the journey more than anything, yeah. But some people that that belt, it's they they really like need that acknowledgement that what they're doing isn't a waste of time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Moving into some uh, some kind of like quick fire questions now. Top three best people you've rolled with. Um, top three best people. There's a lot, mate. There's a lot, mate, and I I, I don't want to leave anyone out, but I can't, I can't I'm not just saying it because I don't even know if he will watch this podcast, but Jimmy is 100% up there. Like, like yeah, he, he, no one feels like that. Do you know what I mean? No, and he, he'll just say, oh, I'm just a Roy dead or whatever else. Or I'm just like, like, it's just mong strength or whatever he tries to downplay it with. Like he is supremely technical and has a strength. Like I've never felt from anyone. Like, Kev is a phenomenal technician. Kev has got a, a bigger artillery or a bigger array of submissions and moves. Um, but what Jimmy does, you know what he's going to do. He does two or three things, but you cannot stop it. Do you know what I mean? You cannot stop it. You can't with Kev to some degree, but Kev does a lot more. Whereas with Jimmy, it's the set, our roles go exactly the same pretty much every time. And uh, I've rolled and been lucky enough to roll with a lot of good people and no one quite feels like Jimmy. Like the way like, his grips feel, the way like he feels when you try and move him. It's like he's got roots 
and like he just embeds himself into the mat. He's unsweepable. Like, mate, I might have swept him once or twice. I've never come close to a takedown on him. And uh, like, nor have I ever submitted him. Do you know what I mean? So for that fact alone, like he's got to be, if not number one, then at least joint first. Do you know what I mean? Like he he is like he feels like he doesn't have blood running through his veins. He reminds me of like a Marvel character or something. Like when he tenses, he just turns like into concrete. It's like he's got liquid concrete running through his veins, and he can just turn into like a brick man or something. I don't know what his name would be if he was a superhero, but he ain't far off one. He's an absolute beast. And anyone who's rolled with him will say the same. Like Paul Lukowski, phenomenal black belt, phenomenal teacher, sings Jimmy's praises all the time. Shane Curtis sings Jimmy's praises all the time. Both of them, them guys, they have to have a mention. Been fortunate to train with them, learn from them. Really, really good, both of them. Um, but if I had to name like three of the best guys I've ever, ever, ever rolled with, so you got Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Woolhead. Tom Breeze, I, I, I was lucky enough to roll with Tom Breeze back in the day a few times. He's really, really good. Um, and then, uh, oh man, it's hard, man, because Kev's got to be in there as well. I'd probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say Kevin, like Kev, Jimmy, Tom, and then if I'm going to throw another one in there, like Probably someone like Shane, do you know? What I mean, yeah. probably so. But then, like, there's Ryan Hodgetts, there's like Brad Boyden as well. Mate, he was he was subbing he was subbing brown and black belts when he was a white belt, mate. And I'm not kidding. What Brad? Yeah, he I was. Mean, I can believe it, but he, I, I mean that's that's still he's, shocking. He's then belts. Like we're talking about how belts have changed. You know, when he he's was a, a white belt, the belt system was very regimented and integrated. He's 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 a, he's a phenom, Brad. He's, he's a beast. He's a, he's a, like a silverback winner. But it's a different thing to Jimmy again. Like Brad is got silly explosive strength, but he doesn't have that. Like when you roll with Jimmy, that like that, that tension. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's a different kind of thing. Brad is like. He's like an, uh, a crocodile, you know what I mean? He'll just explode out of the water and gator roll, he rip your limb off, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. Whereas Jimmy, it's like a slow, soul-destroying grind. The immovable object. Yeah, the immovable object. But, mate, I, I genuinely couldn't name three. I've given yeah. you probably five or six names there. I've been lucky to roll with uh, some pretty good guys. Still plenty of other guys I haven't rolled with that hopefully I get the opportunity to one day. Um, but, uh, yeah, to mention the people I have done, He's doing the best I can for now, yeah. Three submissions. If you can only do three submissions for the rest of your life, for the rest of your jiu-jitsu career, what submissions are those three? You've got to start with the rear naked from the back. You can't go about that. Back's king, in it? Like, get to the back. You Like, yeah, that's a, pretty much the sole objective of jiu-jitsu. But for you, specific for you, for you personally. Really, I do, I do like a choke yeah. from the back. Get to the back, trap the arms, choke them. Yeah, it's pretty much checkmate, that, isn't it? Um, and then, uh, I wouldn't be, like, yeah. I don't think I'd be doing myself justice if I didn't say a triangle or an arm bar. But then, uh, yeah, to add... Um, to add a third one, uh, Dars. I like a Dars, yeah. yeah. Dars. Jimmy's got a very good Dars game. Kev always had good Darses and stuff. Train like Ryan's got good Dars. Always train with guys with good Dars jokes who I've managed to pick up a lot of little details from. And obviously, I've got long arms. You know, I'm like slender man, Mister Tickle. So I can uh, <laughs> I can get Darses quite quite a lot from various positions. So yeah, Dars armbar slash triangle, rear naked choke. Yeah, yeah, nice. I think that's a solid three. Yeah, I like it. 
Would you rather fight 1,000 duck-sized Jimmy Wallheads or a Jimmy Wallhead-sized duck? A Jimmy Wallhead-sized duck, so a thousand... So a thousand Jimmy Wallhead-sized... Wait, sorry. I've confused myself on my own question. Jimmy Wallheads, a thousand Jimmy Wallheads, but they're ducks. The duck-sized, sorry. Yeah. Or a Jimmy Wallhead-sized duck, so it's a Jim, duck. A Jimmy Wallhead-sized duck, all day. Really, even though... Mate, like, it'd be like, like, it'd be, it'd be like that film Small Soldiers. <laughs> it'd be like, like Toy Story. <laughs> But X-rated, <laughs> a thousand duck-sized Jimmy Wallheads, like ten would be enough, bro. Ten little midget Jimmys. You're going to back yourself against ten uh, duck-sized Jimmy Wallheads. Mate, uh, a better chance than I've got against. Well, how many did you say? A thousand. No chance. Yeah, I'm dead. So you're going They'd with the Jimmy Wallhead-sized duck? Jimmy Wallhead-sized duck. Yeah, don't mean it's got the the skill of Jimmy, does it? It's, what's he going to do? Peck me? <laughs> Just going to try and peck me in it, or maybe do that like wing arm break of the swans do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Might flip it. So they've not got claws, have they? They've got flippers, isn't no, they? No, I don't think so. Nah, I reckon I'd, yeah, I'd, they've got a long neck as well. If we get behind it, I'd choke it out. Well, you couldn't dart it because it doesn't have an arm. But yeah, could, I could, could, ju- I, I could it. choke it or guillotine it. it. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, a thousand duck sizes. Jimmy, how big's a duck off the table about that? Mate, that's going to be a so nightmare. Big- I don't know, I was thinking very modest ducks. Nah, but mate, they're from stood up, they're like that, aren't they? With, okay, the, with the neck, the yeah. body, the tail, the feet. A thousand duck-sized jimmies, mate. A thousand duck-sized jimmies could take over Loughborough, mate. Let alone, <laughs> let alone beat me. <laughs> that's going on a reel. Yeah. That's, that's going on a reel. <laughs> that visual image of uh, a yeah, thousand Jimmy Warlord storming down Loughborough High Street. I'd take the, the, duck size, uh, the jimmy-sized duck any day of the week. Easy, easy answer. A um, bit more of a serious question. What advice would you give? Well, two questions. What advice would you give looking? At, what advice would you give? Sorry, to people looking to take BJJ or MMA seriously as a competitor. And what advice would you give to people looking to coach BJJ or MMA? Um, so, looking to compete. I think you've just got to be in the gym doing as much as you can. You've got to forget all this other external bullshit. I know it's 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 appealing. I've done it. I've fallen for the trap. I've I've missed out on sessions when I've gone out and done stuff like that. And you know, what I mean, got distracted with the the forbidden fruits from the tree, that kind of thing. But you've just got to ignore it all. You've got to ignore it all, even if it means ignoring a missus, ignoring getting a bird, ignoring settling down, ignoring getting that like yourself on a mortgage or fulfilling all these other things that seem to be expected of us as as men and as adults in this, in this society. It has to be all or nothing. You have to commit yourself 100% totally and just trust the process. The good, the bad, this too shall pass, like as Tom Hanks says. This too shall pass. Like You will have a great day, you'll have a great week, you'll have a great month. But sooner or later, the, the dark days are going to come again. The clouds are going to come over you again. You're going to feel like you're shit. You're going to feel like you're useless. You're going to feel like you're an imposter that you don't belong in this position. And then all of a sudden, something will click and you'll go back around the other end and you'll start thinking, I'm actually all right at this, but never believe your own hype. Never believe your own hype and also don't count that count yourself out. You, as much as you have to be humble, you also have to be your biggest fan. No one's going to believe you're the bollocks if you don't believe you're the bollocks. So I was never a great competitor, mate. So I'm just saying what I see from the guys who I believe are great competitors. They all speak very highly of themselves because it's self-manifestation, isn't it? It's convincing themselves. Yeah, some people do it in a little bit more likeable way than others, but even guys like Colby and that, that's all that that is. Like, 
they're convincing themselves. You know what I mean? Like, like if they don't believe they're the bollocks, it's theatre, it's pantomime. Like some of them dress it up a little bit more for the camera, but that's all it is. You've got to believe your own hype, yeah? And then you've got to put in the work to merit the hype as well. Um, and that's pretty much the long and short of it. There's no cheat code. There's no diet, strength, or, like, strength conditioning routine, sleep pattern. As much as that will all help and definitely should be taken seriously as well. Mat time, skill building, and actually putting yourself through the process of like learning and getting better and throwing yourself into the fire, whether it's competition or just turning up and training on the mat, you've just got to do it. You've got to do it. Win, lose or draw, whether you love it or you hate it, if this is really what you want to do, then you've got to make sure that you're doing it as much as you can. But I never did that when I was competing, other than maybe those couple of years. But like my my, my uh, transformation came when I started doing coaching. I think I was always more destined for that. Like for, and I do get imposter syndrome because I haven't really, I've never had an MMA fight. And I never really meddled at any prestigious jiu-jitsu comps, but like I see the results you guys get, which obviously has a lot to do with you training alongside one another and the other coaches we have at the gym. And I think like I must be doing something right. You know what I mean? I must I must be doing something I mean, right. I, I can I can say that firsthand. You know the impact you've had. You know everything to you. You know obviously you know Jimmy's my coach too, and all the other teammates at the gym, all the other coaches. But like you're my head coach and. I'd be nowhere without you. Not that you know I'm ADCC champion, you know, right now. But yeah, yeah, but like, you've done you, very you've well in me, what you've taught me. Everything, everything that I know. You're you're a fantastic coach. I can say that firsthand. You've put you've put, but a lot of that as well is you need people like you around guys like me. If I want to be a coach, answering your next part of the question, to be a good coach, you need a team of dedicated athletes who want to learn, who want to be there. If someone don't want to be there, it don't matter what you show them. You could be Hydra Gracie, you could be John Jones. If they don't want to know and they're just there because all they want to do is just roll at the end or they want to post a picture up on Instagram with a caption that sounds more inspiring than it actually is, like they're not there for the right reasons. You guys, you turn up, you listen, you give me undivided attention and then you all blossom together because you, you bounce off one another. If you don't give me the time and the effort, I can't. I can't give you what it is you need to learn. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I learn as much from you guys as I do from guys like Kevin and, and Jimmy from seeing what what happens in competition. Right, we need to work on that area. We need to work on that area. And then stuff that you guys go and learn and come back and show, especially like guys like Riley. Like I, le I learn tons from Riley. Like I've, Riley showed me tons of stuff. Max as well. Like the guys who are now coaching alongside me, Sam. Kieran, I know he's not with us anymore, but he had a big part to play in that. I, I learn from them sorts of guys all the time. And then when I go over and I train with Kev, like Shady might show me a little bit. Something it's not been for a while, unfortunately, because I've got caught up with things here. But definitely, uh, I need to start going back over there because it, it all helps. It all helps. You've got you can't neglect your own training when you become a coach. That's why I've been through periods as a coach where I've totally focused on my coaching and I've put a bit of weight on and stuff like this. And as much as like I think that's that that's uh, that's an integral part of coaching, learning to be a coach and forgetting your your own wants and desires and wanting to be the best on the map. Because if like, if I've never won out significant, how can I expect to still be the best on the map, but then want you guys to? You know what I mean? There's going to be a point where you surpass me, maximum where you nearly asked. You know what I mean? There's guys who are who are coached that now can give me an hard time. Yeah, they can give me a really hard time, um, but. 
a lot more definitely since getting this job full time. I think to kind of like dim the imposter syndrome and and convince myself I'm forcing myself to to actively roll a lot more. Like I try and roll every Wednesday on my Wednesday night class, especially just recently. I try and roll on that. I train every morning. I don't want to jump in and and train there. I don't train every morning. That's a lie. I don't jump in on the MMA sparring like I, I have done in the past, but. Mate, I ain't getting no younger, getting lumps punched out of me. It ain't what I want to be doing. But I'll jump in on the ground and pound. I'll jump in on the wall work. I'll jump in on the grappling. I'll do as much as I can in that respect. And I'll still try and learn as much as I can in terms of the striking and everything else. I'll jump in on a public class and spar kickboxing. I'll be amongst it as much as I can to, to try and learn as much as I can because I'm probably never going to have an MMA fight. Maybe, maybe one day I might do it as a bucket list thing. I don't know. Maybe. But hopefully I, I'd like to think that I might compete in jiu-jitsu again to some degree like maybe have a match on intergrap or something at some point like I'm getting to the point in my rolling now where I feel like I, I could do something like that but when you're totally committed to just coaching and then you jump on the mat and think that you're going to be able to do what you could do six months ago when you were you were rolling all the time <coughs> you'll, you'll, you'll get a shock <coughs> sorry I just had a random spontaneous <laughs> coughing fit you'll get a shock do you know what I mean like um, fighting has to be totally selfish <coughs> and coaching to some degree has to be totally selfless. Like yes. you have to put so others they, they before kind of yourself. Diamet, well, not diamet, they, the opposite, but they they, they they do travel parallel to some degree, but then they They're branch off. The more seriously you take one route over the other, they kind of branch off. Yeah, they kind of branch off. Kev still competes from time to time, and he's a phenomenal coach. Um, but I felt like I've needed periods where I've needed to totally invest myself into you guys and do nothing but coach. And then now I feel like it's beneficial to both you lot and myself to be rolling a little bit more, getting amongst it, seeing what works, testing out the techniques that I'm teaching you, getting some mileage out of it myself before I'm actually trying to show you and preach it. You know what I mean? That kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. I think um, it definitely goes without saying that coaching, uh, being a coach and being a competitor are two very different things. Just because you're a really good competitor, it doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach. And just because you're a good coach doesn't mean you're the best competitor. And I, I really wouldn't, you know, sell yourself short on being a competitor. Like, Bro, anyone at the gym is going to, um, you know, would happily write a testimonial as to, you know, how good you are on the mat and how much of a tough role yeah. you are. Yeah, I mean, at like, all I, all I want to be known as, Aaron, like, I ain't got, I won't lie, I ain't got, like, no hunger to be the best, like, which is what you need to be the best. Like, all I want to be known as is, like, oh, that Joe, he's all right, isn't he? he? He can hang, do you know what I mean? As long as people say that about me, I'm, I'm happy, to be honest. Like, um but yeah, I, I obviously know that I'm not I'm not shit. But to be in the position I am, I definitely shouldn't be. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 I disagree. I disagree. But yeah, like, that's your perspective. That's yeah, your perspective. I, uh, um, I, yeah, like, co- like but, but, a, my, my point was sorry to interrupt. My, my point right. was like, don't say yourself short as a competitor. But that that ties in nicely. You saying you shouldn't be in the position you're in. That was my point. That being a competitor and being a coach are very two different things. Okay, like. Take how good you are as a competitor. We can, you know, debate that, um, you know, another time. But talking about you being a coach, like you're a really good coach. And like I said, I've, I've trained other places as well. Obviously, I go up to Knott's. So when I was down in London, uh, working down there for, you know, five, six months, I trained at London Grapple. And obviously, that's an amazing gym. But I'll, uh, I'll happily go on record and say no one is a, and maybe it's just uh, a and that's because of the chemistry between, we have yeah, as well maybe, but yeah. I, don't, I don't just think it's that because other people have said it as well nobody is able to break down 
individual components of a technique like you are and, and, and the way you're able to teach people fundamentals and take people through things in a very detailed way. A lot of other coaches that um, you know I've gone you know I've gone to and done classes with they're obviously you know they might be very good competitors and they're very good coaches they can teach you good principles but they don't have that attention to detail that you do. That that's my you know my I feel like uh, I've been looking because a lot a lot of what I do and what I say is regurgitated from Kev and his style of teaching I think I've been influenced a lot by him. No, but that's where it comes and from. then I've been you, influenced you've talked that beautifully you've taught that incredibly well. I've been influenced a lot by Jimmy as well. They're my two mentors in this game, Jimmy and Kev, essentially. There are other people as well who've helped me out along the way, but the two main ones would definitely be them. And I'm lucky that they've both been in, like immense competitors as well. Like Kev, but as a blue belt, I don't think he ever lost. And up until black belt, and still even now, he's always competed. And like Kev has suffered with nerves and anxiety and stuff like that. Maybe just like Jimmy hasn't been able to show the full version of himself that we all know and see in the gym. But he's always put himself out there and he's had a he's had a solid competitive run. Definitely nothing to hang his head about. Same with Jimmy, like a legend, you know what I mean? But they are also able to communicate those skills through coaching. I think they're both very good coaches and through being with them so much, I believe I've picked up and adopted their techniques and maybe added my own sprinkle. But they're they're definitely my my biggest influence. And I agree, yeah, you can have amazing competitors who can't coach, and you can also have guys who don't really achieve that much becoming great coaches because they see the potential in people. Whereas an, an amazing competitor is very self-centered. Like they just want to train and they can't really be asked to teach. So they're not really interested in it. Like I think the passion that you have towards something, like I've just said, I ain't got a massive ego. Like it's not me like trying to make myself sound better than anyone else. It's just how I am. It's how I was brought up by my mum and dad. Don't think you're better than anyone else. You know what I mean? Be humble. Like, I think that fits in well to, to coaching. Like, but then it's not going to serve me well in competition because I'm always second guessing myself. I'm always thinking, should I be here? I'm, I'm, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm always having that imposter syndrome. So your mindset has, uh, has a lot to do with that as well. Yeah. Different kind of questions now to finish. Obviously, you know, we, we, we've bonded through jiu-jitsu. For me and you are very close friends. And another uh, love, maybe, love, another um, thing that we're partial to that we share is psychedelics. You yeah. talk about jiu-jitsu being a positive impact on your life. Uh, we've both had numerous psychedelic experiences. And we've both talked about the positive impact they have had on our lives as well. Just talk to me a bit about psychedelics and what you feel they've done for you and if they've in any way benefited your career as a coach so i wouldn't say them like don't make, don't make don't make yeah, yeah yeah don't make a link with that if it's not there i've uh i've done a lot of drugs Aaron. Like, <laughs> I, I, I've, done, I've done a lot of drugs it's not something i'm particularly proud of but at the end of the day it's not, well, something not ashamed I, of it. i'm not ashamed of it yeah. yeah and i don't consider psychedelics to be the same as stuff like cocaine ecstasy it's a different thing like cocaine ecstasy it's a manufactured high I feel like uh, you, you, you're selling yourself, like you, you're buying the cheap alternative to having a good workout. After you've had a good roll, and you've say you've rolled for an hour straight, you'll get off that mat feeling a similar sort of high to taking a pill or sniffing a line. And you, you'll, like those endorphins will give you that. The only difference is that's clean, that's natural. You don't have a come down from it. You'll, you'll progressively... You'll like, put in effort to get... Yeah, do you know what I mean? Where it's... 
the the line or the pillars of cheat code, but at the end of that, like you pay for it because you have the come down, you have like what comes after it, like the the horrors. Like it's it's not nice, especially when you get older and you get more of a conscience and you start to feel guilty and shame for what you've done. Like you feel like a shit house when you do those sorts of things. But when I've had experiences on mushrooms and uh, and DMT, they're the main psychedelics I've used. I've not I've not uh, used acid or, or LSD um, just yet. Um, I, I feel like you come out of those sorts of experiences feeling better. Like uh, I think it gives you what you need rather than what you want. Like not every mushroom experience has it necessarily been uh, been enjoyable all the way through. Like there's been some pretty like I won't say traumatic, but there's been some pretty booky ones. Like uh, where there's been some ups and downs and some turbulence, but like there's also been some pretty amazing ones which have had some some really close friends where I feel like it's connected us on a on another level like uh it sounds absolutely ridiculous and daft but one of the first times I ever did mushrooms um the first time I ever did mushrooms was in Thailand uh with my with my friend Ryan who I went traveling around South America with we had them in these shakes and we went to like just this beach party and it was just yeah it was more like recreational yeah recreational funny kind of thing it didn't last that long either i'm not sure what it was it was definitely psychedelic to some degree because we got the visuals we got the the giggles that kind of thing but compared to that day i took mushrooms and went on that trek with my mates like the first time i did a proper full five i think it was like five or maybe even six gram and we went on like a big trek like that was like euphoric do you know what i mean like but there was periods where I was like, I had tears streaming down my face and I couldn't tell you why. It sounds I sound, like I sound and I looked at the time like a lunatic. But in that moment, <coughs> like we were all so like close and connected. Like I could see my friends in a different light. They they almost looked like aliens and like, like two of them who have like grown up together. Like they looked the same on my trip and it was like they were from the same planet. Whereas my other mate, looked a bit more like he was from my planet that sounds like i'm talking absolute nonsense but it, it only sounds ridiculous to people who haven't had a psychedelic yeah. experience because anyone who has had a psychedelic experience will you know even if i haven't had something exactly like that they'll have experienced something similar yeah it won't sound ridiculous to them and it's like mushrooms obviously is a much longer trip like i've done that where like the times where I've done it and I've been there with you and we've watched the fights and stuff like those sorts of trips, like, yeah, the last one got a little bit out of hand because there was probably a few many, too many people around and I ended up sort of going in my shell and feeling a bit weird, but I come out the other side of it. It was all good. The first time was absolutely brilliant. Like when Sean O'Malley fought Pete Ann, like that was sort of like the pinnacle of the trip. That was, that was the peak of the trip and that fight was unreal. That was the yeah. best fight. That, that was a great fight. The best of time, like the, the, the worst that was a great times. fight sober. Yeah, that was a great <laughs> fight sober, let alone being on three gram of mushrooms, watching that jumping out the telly. It, it was fantastic being around all your brothers, all your bros, all there laughing and joking, feeling totally at ease with one another. Yeah, that's what you need to be. You need no responsibilities, just to be totally relaxed. You need relaxed. to be around people you trust. In your, in your own environment, people who understand what you're doing as well, not people like who are going to be like, oh, what you feel like, or do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, kind or of like, judging you. or judging you, or like not understanding like what you're going through. So they're constantly just trying to talk to you and like not leave you to like, you You guys know, like, if I do that, like, I need like maybe an hour where I'm yeah, just sat there looking like leave it Darth Sidious with my hood up, staring at the telly in a vortex <laughs> like that. <laughs> but uh, again, that sounds mental. People would think, like, well, how is that enjoyable? But it's almost like it's cleaning out your mind. It's like a reset for your mind, I believe. Like 
you, 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 you go through like almost like internal trauma in some degree. It's a really, I don't know how to quite uh, to verbalise it and explain it as well as I'd like to. I, I, I think I think you said it brilliantly by it doesn't give you what you want, it gives you what you Yeah, need. you might be dealing with something in your head and whether or not you want to admit it, that's going to come to the surface of your mind and you're going to be forced to reflect on that when you're on a mushroom trip. DMT, I feel, is a much heavier, harder hit where it's like, again, a reset. Like the best experience I've ever had on DMT was when I went like, uh, as you know, I smoke a bit of weed. Yeah, I, I, I like smoking weed, but... I went through a period where I, I cut out weed altogether, had about six, seven weeks off off the spliffs, I hadn't touched a drink. Um, not that I'm a big drinker or anything, but I like a beer or two at the weekend, chilling at home or whatever. But I'd, I'd gone teetotal for six, seven weeks and I, and I had the DMT pen when I was at home at my mum's in bed, had a couple of chongs on it, put some music on and I went into another dimension. And I think that that's because my mind was so clear. I wasn't stoned, I wasn't, like already compromised and like the stuff I felt on that trip and how I came out the other side of it and how like much more refreshed and unwound and just better I felt like I've always been trying to chase that that high since a little bit when I've used DMT or like mushrooms I've, I've it's a different kind of voyage you go on it's much longer like much more drawn out, isn't it? Like it comes in like waves as well, whereas the DMT is one ferocious, intense hit for like the five minutes. The DMT is like a hundred meter sprint, and then a psilocybin journey can feel like an ultra marathon. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, what I mean, if it's a heavy one, yeah. it's a long one. But I think ultimately the results are the same, and you you've come out the end of it when you finally sober. And you feel better for it. You feel better for it now. Do I think that people should be doing it every weekend and abusing it? Absolutely not. Like it is not a toy. Just like it's not no, cocaine no. Or, or ecstasy or even weed. Like people go out and sniff a bag every weekend. They shouldn't. Right? It's definitely bad for them, but they, they can do and they, they function well enough on that. Um, or they at least try to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they can fake they, 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 can, they, can, they can fake it. You know what I mean? Like they might well, feel like- Some people's ability to... Well, they like might be, feel be like shit. Drug addicts or, or alcoholics and still get through life. Yeah, functioning alcoholics. It's pretty amazing. Functioning alcoholics and, and drug addicts, they they, <clears throat> they live among us like, yeah, there's, yeah. yeah you'd walk past a there's dozen. There's more than in, you realise. Yeah, you, you, you'd walk past a dozen in the street every day. But like, as much as I don't believe you can abuse those drugs, you can get away with it a lot more. With psilocybin and, and DMT and stuff like that, I think... Uh, like a quarterly thing is more than enough. Yeah. Like even like every unless six you go months. into some people talk about microdosing. Unless you know, I've never microdosed. I've only ever done it as as like a, an event. You know, what yeah. I mean, like this. I'm doing you, you this can't today. Do that. You, you'd be paralysed by your own internalisation. Yeah, because you there's, you can't do anything out. You know, what no. I mean? people they smoke a bit of weed, or even I don't know, you know, do a couple of lines. They can do other things. Try smoking DMT or taking yeah. a heavy dose of mushrooms and then going about your normal day. No. It's not going to happen. You definitely couldn't do it on the DMT. On a small dose of mushrooms, you maybe could, but yeah, then you're not going to get the effects of what you'd get on a proper dose with the, yeah. with the mushrooms. But with the mushrooms, like DMT, you can hit that pen. I've never smoked like the, the raw crystal. I've only ever done it through the, like, the vaporized pen form. But you can smoke that pen. And you know, no matter how intense the trip, in 10 minutes it's going to be over, you're going to be back to normal. Mushrooms, you better buckle up because if you're doing three to five gram for the next six hours or four to six hours, four and a half, six hours, like 
you you better just accept what's happening is going to happen yeah, and you, no it's going to come in waves and you're going to feel all right one minute the next minute you're going to feel like an emotional wreck and to speak about it people probably think like why the hell does he want to do that but you're going to have to like i'm not encouraging drug use or, or, or anything like that but you, you'd have to do it to understand like what you get out of it and how you feel afterwards there's you, enough famous it's a and, net benefit yeah it's a net benefit at the end of the day you feel better for it yes whereas there's never a time where i've gone out and used party drugs and not regretted doing it you know what i mean i, I don't think I've, i might have regretted doing mushrooms once but that was more the situation than the actual effects like i did i definitely still felt better afterwards but i thought oh, you know i didn't like people seeing me like that you know what i mean um Using party drugs, like you get, you're gonna feel, you're gonna feel like shit after that, regardless. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you have to put yourself through it to understand that what what you're gonna what you're gonna get out of it. Yeah, and maybe not everyone feels the same as us. Maybe if like, because I know a few of my mates who they like smoking weed and stuff, but mushrooms, they're like that, no chance. Like, because yeah. they've had a bad bad go on it, and they'll never touch it again. Um, but uh, I think because my first few trips were so enjoyable, even though now I might have had one or two dodgy ones I, I still have the faith that this is like yeah as long as i'm not doing it every weekend as long as it's like a, a once in a blue moon thing it's it's uh, it's always going to be something that i can enjoy and and take something from yeah this uh, may be a related question or may not never actually asked you this before never spoke about this before i don't think do you think there's life after death um i definitely think that dmt um is maybe like I think it is what your brain releases when you die or something like that. I've heard that yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You get a big, big release the end. But like the the feeling that it gives you, I think might be the feeling that you get when you're about to die. And like the, there's it. I remember that time what I spoke about earlier when I was like like teetotal, totally sober, and I and I smoked the DMT pen. I, I felt like so relaxed and comfortable, like it was almost like take me. Do you know what I mean? I almost felt like there were certain entities, whether you call that God or whatever, that were like closing in around me. But like, I felt safe, I felt comfortable. I felt like they were there as a positive thing. Like I can't describe what I was seeing or whatever, but in that moment, I felt like an external force or being, which some people might think is God. And I definitely didn't feel like in danger or anything like that. I felt comforted by it. And when I come out the other side of it, I was still fully aware throughout the whole thing, this is a trip, but like, yeah, it was, uh, when I come out the other side of it, it was like a, a very like a rewarding, euphoric kind of like experience, yeah. Yeah, I, I, life after death, um, I don't know, I don't know. I think you go in the ground and who knows, yeah. My, my dad always says, it's like you go to sleep and you don't wake up, that's what my dad always says. He's an atheist, like, um, but trust me, bro, like when there's been bad times in my life, like, I've prayed, like, I have prayed like um, when my sister's been poorly. I remember, he don't know this, but before Jimmy fought Figlack, I got down on my knees in the hotel toilet and I prayed, I yeah. prayed for him to win. Because like when you feel so powerless in something, you want to feel like you're doing something. And I spent all weekend trying to talk him up and everything else. I knew he was nervous. I knew he had shit going on in his life. And I, I, I prayed in the hotel toilet, like, please, Give him this, like, no. give him this. And I don't, I've not done it again since, and I wouldn't do it before, like, because I don't want it to be a selfish thing. Like, if there is a God, I don't think he, like, I'm entitled to anything, you know what I mean? But, like, when you feel powerless and you just want to feel like you're doing something. You search for power. Yeah, you sort, you're just like, else. if there's something out there, like, just roll the dice in my favour this time, you yeah. know what I mean? Or for the favour of 
of, of someone I love and I care about, like Jimmy. Do you know what I mean? After everything I'd seen him go through that camp, I just I wanted him to win so much. And you obviously see on that video, I totally lost my mind when he yeah, uh, that's he, brilliant. He knocked Figlak such out. A, such a pure, just a pure celebration, yeah. and release of emotion from both Jimmy in the octagon and then you in the cage. Sorry, and you, yeah. I've probably prayed a handful of times in my life since I was like a teenager, and like yeah, probably a couple of those times would have been for my sister. Um, or other family members who were in trouble. Like, I've never, I might have prayed once or twice for myself, like when I've been struggling or whatever, maybe with my back, I'm not sure. Um, I say pray, it's a lot of like, those sorts of times. I'm kind of like begging to anyone who's yeah. listening. Do you know what I mean? But uh, I definitely pray to a God if he's out there for, for Jimmy and at least one time with my sister. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Another deep philosophical question. What's something about your 20s, looking back now? Because you're 34? I'm 35 next year, 34, next yeah. Year. Just looking back on your 20s, you've given me, you know, you're like a big brother to me, you've given me so much guidance on, um, you know, how to best use these years of my life. What's something you would do differently in your 20s, if anything? Or not, if you would go back and do it differently, what would you advise people in their 20s to do? Don't take your life too seriously. Your 20s are there to be discovering yourself, finding out who you are, what you like. Don't try and make anyone else happy, whether it's an employer, whether it's a, a bird. Like, Yeah, as much as it's good to be cordial and be nice to people. Like, I've been in relationships I knew I didn't want to be in. I've worked in jobs that I didn't want to work in, but I knew like people were dependent on me and I knew... The, the girl or whatever, like, was in love with me or whatever, and and I've wasted, like, not wasted is probably the wrong word, but I've spent years in places doing things which could have been avoided if I was a little bit more self-centred. Like, now, I don't want to ever be a selfish person. I think that's what makes me an half-decent coach, the fact that I, like, I care a lot about people and seeing you do well and having time to listen to you guys and everything else. But um, I definitely think, like, I felt like I had to have it all figured out before I did, like, me and Kelsey together when we were living in my mum and at my mum and dad's in my room, like especially during COVID when I lost my jobs and everything like that, and I was working at Amazon Warehouse and then working at some other shit show, which probably the worst job I've ever had in my life. Like where I am now, doing what I love, having my own house, having my dog, like it seems so far off and it was only really two or three years of hard graft, you know what I mean? Like I always had my vision, I always had my focus, I just had to not stray from the path. So whatever was going on around me, I just kept at it. And I never had that focus in my 20s, like not that I did towards the end of my 20s anyway. In fact, maybe when I first started jiu-jitsu, I'd have just, like, if I'd have maybe like focused on myself a little bit more, like even though it did a lot for me, like I was still in relationships. I was still like, doing a lot of stuff to please other people. And I, and I think uh, you have to look after number one to some degree. And um, and yeah, you only get one shot at this life. So don't waste it worrying or trying to make someone else happy or trying to force something that's not there. It's not worth it, man. It's just not worth it. You've, you've got to live for, the, live for the moment and live for the now and, um, and try and take advice like what's given to you by people you look up to. My dad gave me tons of advice growing up and he was right about pretty much everything. Do you know what I mean? And you don't realise it until you get older. Like I said, like, you know, like I love Tom Owen. Tom Owen is like one of my little brothers. Like it, 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 I do, like I care a lot about that lad. But 
he's going through a, a, a period now, or he was going through a period not long ago, where I felt like he felt like he had to have it all figured out. Like he, he wanted a missus, he wanted stability, he wanted a job, he wanted this, he wanted that. And that's all what you're forced to believe you need by society. And that is definitely, like, if you can get that locked down, like my mate, Danny Turnbull, like, he's got a beautiful missus, a beautiful family, like, he's got an amazing career. And But he is, like, your typical guy who's, who's just doing well in life. But he, he's not doing anything extraordinary. He's just great at life. Do you know what I mean? Like, but I felt like Tom was trying to, like, force that, like, normal routine when he has such an immense talent if he'd just focus on that. But it, 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 it's difficult for him because he's never had the support that that I've had in terms of a family and stuff like that. Like his family was the gym, his family was the team. And that's why when he decided to leave to go back to Newcastle and start doing what he's doing, as much as he's made it a success, he's DJing now, he's got a well-paid job, he's got a great car, he come down to visit the other week. Really, really proud of him. But I felt like for a certain point, he was feeling like he had to have it all figured out before he actually did. I didn't have, I didn't have it all figured out. I, didn't, I still don't have it all figured out. I didn't have fuck all figured out until I was probably 30. Like 30 plus did stuff start to come together for me. Before then, I was just kind of winging it and uh, and seeing where it goes. Yeah, like I, I tried a lot of things through the influence of other people because I thought like, oh, they're they're doing it or they're, they're benefiting from it or they're enjoying it. So maybe that's what I should do rather than just focusing on what made me happy and what I knew deep down I wanted to do and what I was good at. Just focusing on that rather than getting pulled from pillar to post, trying to like fit in with different crowds or, or please different people or do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, you got to live for yourself as much as it's good to be open-minded <clears throat> and a people person and, and show love and show respect to everyone around you, treat people as you find them. You've got to look after number one as well because no one's got your back like yourself. You know what I mean? And I think uh, I, I've sacrificed a lot of my own happiness at times or a, a lot of my own opportunities trying to, to keep someone else happy or do something that I feel like would please someone else. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, especially in my twenties. Yeah. And I think this dovetails nicely as a, a final question off of that here today. What does success mean to Joe Taylor? So success is definitely like, I never thought I'd say it. I never thought I'd say it like it's not a money thing. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not struggling for money, but by no means am I raking it in. Like me and Kelsey, we do all right. We do all right. We've got a little pot of savings. Um, but we're not like being able to splash out on whatever we want, whenever we want. Like we yeah, I especially I I go without to make sure that there's that she can have what she wants and the house can have what it needs and she provides as well. Like, absolutely. I'm not saying it's a, a like all done through me, but um, fulfillment comes in the form of doing what you love. So I'm able to come in and, and, and coach jujitsu and, and do what I love now for a living, see you guys succeed, live a little bit through you guys. I, I, I'll admit to that. Like it, it's great being able to be cage side and see you you guys go and win fights and, and belts and medals at jujitsu comps and do stuff that I was never able to do and, and share it with you. And, and I'm so grateful that you guys like are grateful to me for that and and and, and almost like uh what's what would be the word like would would say that i'm the reason that you have managed to achieve some of that success or whatever that's a great feeling for me um but it's like health comes first you can have all the money in the world if you ain't healthy and that can be in the terms of like a, a serious illness or an injury when you're injured like with my back 
you can't do what you love you can't you can't function how you want to when you compromise like you can have all the money in the, in the world you have all the money in the bank and it, it, it don't mean a great deal it's just a number on a screen do you know what i mean like money definitely helps and 100 percent helps i'd love more money but i don't think money is going to ultimately make me feel fulfilled and happy doing what i love and and benefiting other people and and making and making and making those i care about like feel good about themselves that's that's uh that's the main thing for me having having love from my from my missus like being in a content relationship i've been in relationships before where like i say like i could have been with a lovely bird but i knew like i didn't want to be in the relationship i've been with birds where i felt like what they up to like any chance i get should i be checking their phone kind of thing with kelsey like they say like <clears throat> love is like a like when you find love, true love, I think it's like pure bliss, just content. You know what I mean? It's not like a whirlwind of emotions. It's not overly exciting. It's not overly passionate. It's uh, it's just calmness. Like I feel yeah. like I can lasting joy. Yeah, lasting bliss. I can I focus on myself. I can I can do what it is I need to do to be happy because I've got her support. I've got her blessing, and then I have her to go home to at the end of the day. And she makes me incredibly happy and, and feel incredibly content. So I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have that. I, I think people. I think some people go through life and they never find that. I think some people settle. I think some people force. I think some people, yeah, like they ne they never they never find that. But I'm lucky that in Kelsey, maybe one day I'll, I'll turn around and I'll look a mug when she's off dicking the milkman. But <laughs> I honestly, I could never, I could never, I could never see it like, because. I don't even have to try to trust her, you know what I mean? And I've been in relationships where I don't trust yeah. her, which definitely. But it's uh it's a very pure, like easy thing, you know, like being with Kelsey and um and then having the the ability and the blessing of coming in and doing what I love and putting smiles on your faces and having the crack, having the banter and being able to do like all these amazing things alongside my brothers, my friends, that's true fulfillment, that's that's success, like being alongside Jimmy, like I used to watch Jimmy fighting on the on the TV. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I knew about the rough house and everything else, like coming up through jujitsu, like before I'd ever met Jimmy or had like a, a relationship with him in terms of a friendship. Like I'd maybe nodded him at a show or something like that, but I'd never like me and Jimmy now. We're like brothers. Do you know what I mean? Like he he can depend on me for anything, and I can depend on him. And it's like I think that that relationship benefits the gym as well. Like it's almost like a mum and dad kind of thing you know what i mean like i definitely think he's dad and i'm mum but yeah it's uh it, it, it's that that's, hey dad and dad these days yeah yeah to, to, <laughs> to stick with the times but um yeah that that's 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 a long-winded answer but that's success yeah. that's fulfillment yeah I, I think that's a great definition you never give yourself the credit that you deserve and you're owed i'm gonna say it not just on behalf of myself but on behalf of the whole team you're you know, one of the biggest assets to the gym. The advice that you give all of us, not just in terms of how to be you know, the best on the mats, in comps, in fights, but in life as well. I appreciate it. I know everyone else appreciates it. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing your journey and the wisdom that you've picked up along the way. No, so I, thank you, bro. I, I appreciate, appreciate it, mate. It. And I think you're doing a good job, man. I think you're there. I, I always want to support people with stuff like this. Like, say, it's balls to do something like this. It's easy to take the piss and be like, oh, what's he doing? You know, what are you doing? You know what I mean? What are you doing? You know what I mean? You're doing something. 
that you're, you're passionate about. You're not making no money or anything from it yet, but you're putting out something that I believe is, is good content. I think uh, you're a good guy, you're intelligent, um, and uh, I hope this, this whole thing blows up for you, whether it's financially or whether it's just that you can't wait to do it each podcast each week and it gives you like, do you know what I mean? A highlight of each week, like recording this podcast. I hope it's it's an overwhelming success for you. And that's why I come on here. Like, I don't necessarily feel overly comfortable or confident doing this kind of thing, but I do it for you because I respect you and I, and I want what you do to be a success, whether it's on or off the map. Thank you, bro. Yeah, no worries, mate. I yeah. really appreciate that. Thank you.